This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. My name is Eric Kimberling. And I'm here today to talk about our top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. So this is sort of a, a mid-year point. We've been doing this podcast now for about a year and a half. We started it back in January of 2021. And in that time, we've done close to 100 different interviews. I think it's actually over 100 now uh, in that 18 months. And just this year alone in 2022, as we come up on the midpoint of the year, which is hard to believe, it's already halfway through 2022, but... If you look at the interviews we've done, we've done close to 30 interviews so far this year for this podcast, and a wide variety of topics we've covered in the show, ranging from anything related to digital transformation, ranging from digital strategy to software evaluation, how to manage system integrators, organizational change management, program management, uh, understanding different technologies, diving into emerging technologies, and understanding the human and leadership aspects of change are just a few examples of some of the threads and topics we've covered on the show over the last several months and actually since the show's inception back in 2021. So what I wanted to do here in today's episode is really provide the best of so far this year. So these are the top 10 interviews, according to me, quite frankly, it it includes my biases, but it also includes some data points that I use to rank these. And largely I based these rankings on a few different criteria. One is the topics that resonated the most or the interviews that that garnered the most attention, the most views, the most listens, the most engagement from the audience. Um, that's one criteria. Uh, another is just the interviews I liked, the ones I thought that get, did the best job of unpacking some of the concepts that were most critical and most important to digital transformation. So those are just a couple criteria that were used, probably the two most important criteria. And I did look at metrics for, for each of these interviews to see you know, which ones got the most views and of the ones that I thought were the, the most relevant to the topics that we covered, uh, you know, which ones are the, mo- the ones that got the most views and engagement. And that's really how I, how I generated this, this top 10 ranking. There's a lot of interviews though that did not make the top 10 list. And it's almost interesting to look at some of these interviews that did not make the top 10 list. And I'll give you just a couple examples and then I'm going to actually dive into the top 10. Um, but some of the, the topics that did not make the list was, uh, you know, workforce management and analytics. That was a, an interview we had um, a few weeks ago or earlier in 2022 with John Heiliger. Uh, he was on the show. He, we had a great conversation about workforce analytics and how to, how to measure and manage workforces. Uh, we had Nate, Nate Stroher from the third stage team who was on talking about a lot of digital strategy uh, sorts of topics. That was a very good conversation. So those are just two examples of a couple interviews that did not make the top 10, but it just goes to show how difficult it was to really hone it down to these top 10 
uh, interviews. And so I'm, I'm excited to play you some of these clips. I'm not going to play the entire interviews, but with each of these top 10 interviews, I'm going to play you the highlight from the clip or sort of the main highlight from the interview. And I'll also reference what episode it came from so you can go back and listen to that full episode if it's a topic of interest or if you like a particular guest. But this is sort of a, a flyover view of, of some of the best of 2022 so far. And by the way, before I get into the podcast, in case you didn't know, or actually before I get into the top 10 list, I should say, um, in case you didn't know, this podcast is named after a David Bowie song. So just a fun little trivia fact, if you know the song Space Oddity, which is one of the early David Bowie hits, I think it might have been his first hit actually, back when he was first starting out, he had a song called Space Oddity, tells a story of Major Tom going up into space, and Major Tom is presumably a fictional character, but he's going up into space, and it's basically the whole song is about him communicating with ground control, ground control communicating with Major Tom as he goes up into space and explores space, and if you know anything about third stage, you know there's a heavy space analogy there with uh, digital transformation being a comparison to a space launch or a space journey, and uh, fighting gravity, fighting inertia, fighting risk, overcoming risk, all that stuff. And certainly, if you listen to the song Space Oddity um, from David Bowie, there's a lot of risk that he, that the main character, the Major Tom, uh, encounters while he's in space. So that sort of brings it all first full circle, transformation, ground control, third stage, all that good stuff. So a uh, little fun fact about the, the backstory of where the name transformation, ground control came from. So let's dive into the top 10 list here. And the first uh, topic we're going to cover here is, or the first uh interview on our top 10 is coming in at number 10, which is an interview we did back in episode number 53 with Marcus Harris, who is an attorney at Taft Law. And Taft Law, and and Marcus in particular, is a company that specializes in helping organizations from a legal perspective uh, negotiate contracts. Uh, He and I first met actually in an ERP digital transformation related litigation uh, lawsuit where his firm hired me to be an expert witness in that case. And that's how he and I first met years ago. And so he also does litigation related to ERP failures, digital transformation failures. And so I wanted to have him on the show again. He was on, uh, I think, twice in 2021. And then we had him uh, a third time as a guest in 2022, earlier this year on episode number 53. And he was on talking about um, how to negotiate contracts with software vendors and system integrators. And he gives some really good advice on things you should be thinking about, some landmines to watch out for, and really understanding some of the nuances and risks of, um, of some of these, these aspects of, of digital transformation, um, which is one of the, the first things that, that organizations um, have to deal with is really uh, understanding what those vendor contracts entail and how it affects their digital transformation, their cost, their risk longer term, uh, the potential business value, all that stuff is affected by the vendor contracts. And in many ways, the trajectory for digital transformation is set when you execute those contracts. You're sort of locking yourself into a certain set of parameters and criteria and assumptions and cost and risk and all that good stuff. And so we had a really good conversation when he was on the show back in episode 53 to talk about vendor contracts, some of the things to be aware of. And uh, let's just cut to the cut to the clip here and we'll play you a little clip from episode number 53 with Marcus Harris talking about best practices with vendor contracts. Uh, moving to the to the front end here of, of transformation and sort of setting the tone for, for a transformation. I, I guess just to set the context for some of the questions I'll ask you is it seems like there's so many decisions and um, 
criteria and parameters that get defined from a legal perspective, but also just from a pure delivery and execution perspective up front during this whole contract, you know, vendor contract procurement process. But I think a lot of organizations don't really know what to look for, what the risks are, what the pitfalls are, but it's so important because you're, you're sort of baking in what the project is going to be. You're setting the trajectory, you're, you're setting parameters for yourselves, for your vendors, all that stuff. And so maybe maybe just to start, if you could, um, before I jump into my, my real questions, is yeah. maybe just explain to the audience, if you don't mind, like why, why is this so important, this whole upfront piece of... Uh, you know, piece of vendor contracts, procurement, all that stuff. Yeah, well, I think I think you touched on it. You know, really what you're doing through the contract negotiation process and putting the contract in place is you're really setting the tone for, you know, how the relationship is going to fold out for the life cycle of, of the implementation project. So, and really beyond, right? So any kind of maintenance support, licensing, whatever it is, it's all going to be governed by the contract that you negotiate on the front end, the ideal scenario is to you know have a contract that reasonably anticipates everything that can happen during that relationship and spells out you know, a process for dealing with whatever issue happens to arise. It's it's you know that's a, that's a tall order because I don't think anybody can look into a crystal ball and anticipate everything that's going to possibly happen in the future. But you know, with experienced counsel, experienced consultants, people that have been this, through this a few times, you're you're going to set yourself up for you know a, a pretty good chance of success if you if you you know, do the front end work by anticipating all the things where this thing can go sideways, have a contractual process for mitigating the likelihood it's going to happen at all, and when it does happen, know exactly you know what the process is to deal with it when it arises. You know, my my goal is not to not to and this may sound surprising it's not to put in place an ironclad contract and there's one reason for that really is that you know i can do that all day but no one's going to sign it right and ex especially not an experienced software vendor right. they're going to just walk away and say are you, your your expectations are unreasonable the goal is to put a contract in place that defines the relationship it you know makes reasonable concessions on on both sides it doesn't shift the entirety of the risk of the transaction to one side or the other it kind of balances it out in a reasonable way and ultimately you know you should be as the business owner um the customer in a position where you know something goes wrong you pull that contract out from your desk drawer and you say oh look you know uh on page seven paragraph three we anticipated this would happen and this is exactly what the vendor's supposed to do and you know they're going to give you a hard time and say no we don't want to do that that's not how things work and you say no you know, here, here's here's exactly what's going to happen. That's the goal. That's a successful contract process, right there. You know, that's that's the the end result that you want to have, ideally. It's kind of removing that ambiguity, making things predictable, having a clear, you know, having those clear parameters or guardrails in place for the for the overall project. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, you know, what what you're doing during a contract negotiation, it's it's really not from the legal perspective. It's not, you know, I. I don't, I'm not concerned with the price, right? That's that's what people hire you for. That's what there's other consultants that can say, look, you're not getting a good deal. Attorneys aren't really focused on you know, the, the financial aspects of the deal. I can kind of tell just because I've done it a lot of times if, you know, list price doesn't mean anything to me, right? It doesn't mean anything to anybody. You get an 80% discount off list rate, you know? Not, right. It's not because you negotiated something strongly. It's just, you know, list price is illusory. Um, right. But it, it really is, you know, to, to put in place a contract that sets you up for success by governing the relationship, right? Um, you know, you have you, you never have as much leverage 
in that relationship as you do before you sign on the dotted line. And you've got to use that, that leverage in a way that makes sense for you. And, and really it's all about risk mitigation. And you know, you've, got to, you've got to ask the tough questions. You've got to make sure that everything is discussed pre, prior to signing um, so that you can see where, you know, how far apart you are. We talk about functionality gaps, but there's gaps in perception and gaps about you know, expectations. And you want to minimize the likelihood of those coming to bite you in the rear end later. And the only way to do that is through a thorough negotiation process. Right. Right. Yeah. It makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, so when we think about, um, you've been doing this a long time and, and for decades now, and now we're in a new year, 2022 is upon us. A lot of, a lot of organizations are sort of looking forward to, you know, whatever, what are our contracts going to look like? How are we going to negotiate with our vendors? What vendors are we going to bring on board and whatnot? Um, but what some of, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the market? You know, what, what's changed from a, contractual or procurement or negotiation perspective or what is changing what do you expect to change here in the new year or in the coming years you know one of the things that we continue to see as a focus of contracts is you know this whole issue around data security cybersecurity, uh, data integrity who's accessing your data you know do you need a dpa a data processing agreement um you know and it depends you know the compliance with you know the new data privacy laws that have been put in place over the last five years or so, you know, it, it, it's a patchwork, excuse me, a, a patchwork quilt, you know, of regulations and laws. I'm just trying to navigate that and figure out, you know, what your, what your issues are and what they aren't, um, and what your obligations are. It's, it's, it's incredibly challenging. You know, I was on the phone yesterday with um, an actual NFL team that's entering into a large ERP transaction and data privacy uh, about, you know, with respect to the protection of, of the personally identifiable information of their fans was incredibly important. And, you know, it, it's trying to put standard DPAs in place with them, understanding what their risks are, how to mitigate those risks and, and what the compliance framework is, you know, what what's actually applicable to them as a processor or a controller, you know. So right. that's, I think, going to continue to be substantive over the next 12 months and, and beyond. Um, you know, so you've got to have strategies for understanding, you know, how to mitigate those risks, what your obligations are, and what you can, you know, reasonably hold your vendor's feet to the fire uh, for. The other thing that we're seeing um, on, on a pretty consistent basis is vendor inflexibility with respect to negotiation. It just, mm -hmm. you know, it, you try you try negotiating with Oracle, you know, and it's just you're getting the stiff arm, you know every which way it's just there's not a lot of flexibility and i think you know it depends certainly on how much money you're spending um what kind of market you're in i mean if you're in a strategic market for them you're a newer customer they really want to get an inroad into the industry that you're in um you know maybe you have more leverage even though you're not spending as much money but you know always you're spending you're spending multi-millions of dollars you know things get a lot easier as far as concessions you're spending you know under a million you know good luck right you're not you're not really going to get a lot of concessions for them. One of the other things we see with respect to Oracle in particular is really the push, and it's a continued push, to try to finance these lower money deals. Um, and that's almost always a mistake from a from a customer perspective because you you really take away a lot of flexibility if something goes wrong. Um, if you finance the deal through you know Oracle's financing arm and you want to hold back payments, um, you don't have the ability to do that necessarily. Uh, because there's an acceleration clause in those agreements where everything comes due at once and they hold that over your head and it, it becomes very challenging. 
those are some of the trends that we're seeing. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's more granular things that we can talk about as far as, you know, specific techniques for negotiating, you know, indemnity and limitations of liability and super caps and that kind of thing. Um, but from a, you know, with a broad brush, that's really kind of where, where I see uh, the market going or where it's, where it has been and where it's going to continue to go. So why do you think that is that some of the vendors are demonstrating this inflexibility? Is it, is it because of cloud solutions or more of a cookie cutter-ish sort of deployment or, or approach? Or is it just that you've got bigger vendors now that are more, you know, more active or what, what do you think is driving that? Well, I, I think it's kind of both. I mean, I think, you know, they're, they're really incented to get these deals done quickly, right? And a long drawn out negotiation process doesn't serve that need. They're really going into kind of the SMB space. You look at Oracle with NetSuite, you know, those are smaller deals. And so you know, their desire to negotiate a smaller deal is just gone. Um, and the mantra that they keep you know, repeating is, look, this is a cookie cutter cloud solution. Everybody gets the same thing and you don't need to negotiate it because, you know, we just, we're, it, everybody gets the same. Our business model doesn't really, you know, support kind of these one-off concessions. And that's, that's not really true. Okay. Um, first of all, you know, everything's negotiable. Um, it just depends, you know, on what kind of leverage you have and, and how much they care about that customer relationship. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it really is something that you've got to deal with and you've got to, you've got to have experienced attorneys on your side and experienced consultants that know, you know, what's a reasonable ask right now in this environment? What can you get? You know, what's important? I mean, you don't, you don't want to spend, you know, time and money negotiating things um, negotiating for contingencies that are very unlikely to happen, right? I mean, you want to get the most bang for your buck out of your contract negotiation with the goal of mitigating risk. And, you know, if you're only going to get, you know, five things, you know, make them count, right? Uh, right. So, yeah, that's, but to answer your question specifically, because I'm not sure I have, is I think it's the, it's the size of the deals, right? It's this cookie cutter approach to these transactions. Um, and, you know, it's leverage, Basically, if you don't have leverage, there's no incentive for them to, to make any kind of serious concession. Their excuse is, you know, it's a cookie cutter transaction. It's a SaaS transaction. You're in the cloud. It's a, it's a single offering to all of our customer base and there can't be any one offs. That that's the push. But, you know, a lot of that's not really true. So, right. All right. That's a great conversation with Marcus Harris talking about vendor contracts and how to negotiate vendor contracts, what to be aware of, some of the pitfalls to watch out for. If you'd like to hear that complete interview, go back to episode number 53 of this podcast, Transformation Ground Control. You can find that full interview there. And uh, he, we spent close to an hour, if not maybe a little bit longer than an hour, talking about that topic. So there's a lot more we didn't cover here in this clip, but hopefully that gives you a sense of what we covered in that full conversation. So when we come back from a break, we're going to come back with our, our number nine uh, interview in our top 10 list. And it's going to be the first of a few different consultants that are in the top 10 list. Uh, this is with Khalid Morris. I'll tell you what it's about here in just a second. But when we, first of all, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, I'll get into that number nine interview on in our top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, 
and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71, which is the top 10 interviews of this podcast in 2022 so far. We're counting down the top 10 interviews that, in my opinion, are the most relevant to digital transformations, the most important content and knowledge that you need to know as it relates to digital transformation. And it's also based largely on the level of engagement and the amount of views that these episodes and these interviews achieved when they were first published way back when. And when I say way back when, I mean in early 2022, which was just a few weeks or months ago. So we had Marcus Harris in at number 10, talking about vendor contracts. Coming in at number nine was a, a new format for an interview that I had never done before, but I wanted to try it out with one of our consultants on our team at Third Stage. And this was with Khalid Morris, who's actually a director of strategy and transformation in the U.S. office of Third Stage Consulting. And the reason it's a different format is I wanted to have a consultant on the show just to ask them questions and sort of put them on a hot seat. Just ask them questions about their career, what it takes to succeed, what makes digital transformation succeed. And rather than focus just on one narrow topic, I wanted to cover a pretty broad topic, but but sort of uh, unscripted, go through you know a number of different angles uh, with with the guest. And so this is the very first time we've done it. And actually, it was highly successful. It was very engaging. We did it in a live stream format, um, which we streamed to YouTube, um, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. And by the way, if you haven't already, be sure to follow me or connect with me on LinkedIn and or YouTube, because in those two formats, you'll get an alert every time. If you're connected to me, you'll get an alert every time I go live. And I try to do live streams uh, typically once a week, except when I'm on vacation or, or if I have extensive travel. But in most cases, I'm, I'm doing these live streams once a week now. But this is one of the first live stream formats where I really just had this consultant hot seat format where we put a consultant in the hot seat and just fire away with a bunch of questions. And we encourage the audience to do the same too. And as you'll hear in this interview, we started to get a lot of audience questions and you, we just had no idea where the conversation was going to go. And Khalid's a perfect person for it because he's really good at rolling with the punches. And I, I think I am too. So we, we sort of, between the two of us, just rolled with the punches rolled with the crowd here on, on the questions and topics they wanted to cover. So this is from episode number 62 of Transformation Ground Control. This is the consultant hot seat with Khalid Morris, episode number 62. Let's cut to the clip right now. When you look at your finance and real estate background, um, I know you may try to blame me for this, and, and I think you already did, but, but why, <laughs> what, did you, what made you shift from finance and real estate to consulting. I know that was around the time you and I met. And then I, I think I, I, may, I may have been involved in trying to convince you to <laughs> do consulting at the time. But what ultimately led you to um, decide that, hey, I want to try this consulting thing back way back when? Well, originally it was opportunity. Um, the opportunities were thin and it is just the real estate market was extremely thin. And I wasn't banking on that. You don't foresee uh, a collapse of an industry. And, um, you know, when that Lehman Brothers, you know, 
trigger sort of happened and the financial world started to, um, you know, sort of shrink uh, in that way it was a dramatic uh, impact on the real estate market. There was no construction projects. There were no real estate projects. I had one real estate development opportunity and um, I also had um, another uh, quasi opportunity that I was working through coming out of DU and both opportunities weren't that great. And and the, op the options were sort of getting thin. So you you it was a real opportunity to kind of do some consulting. Um, I was looking for that uh, in that uh, I needed something and I didn't really expect to have longevity in what it was. Um, you know, funny enough, you know, the, 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 the link between us and kind of getting in the consulting world was built around finance and, and, and the need at that time, you, you kind of had this project and you really needed some financial acumen, you needed someone to be a liaison for the finance group, you needed someone to talk to, to, to those people who understood their language and that, since that was my background, that part was easy for me. Um, that's kind of the way it started. But what I what I learned was you know, it, IT and and real estate have a lot of parallels as it relates to project management. Um, you know, you, you, you can really run, I, I, you know, a lot of real estate projects run almost like a waterfall, uh, uh, you know, uh, implementation. And and so when, when I sort of sort of got submerged into the rhythm of um, technical development, I uh, almost felt familiar. You know, it, 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 it felt it, 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 a lot of the things I love about real estate development is nothing is there and you're working through a development cycle to sort of build something. You're, you're working, whether it's a blight zone or a vacant land or an unused building, sort of you get an opportunity to, to change something. And the same is happening on technology. Uh, nothing is there. You're sort of designing from scratch. And so you're building, and there's so many sort of indirect hidden ramifications as it relates to business processes and the links there that uh, you're, you're making a significant change um, in the application of, um, of a business, the function of a business. And um, that part for me is was, was thrilling. So I ended up getting a lot of thrill out of working with technical projects and um, accomplishing or completing some of these implementation deliveries in the same way that and it was a shorter cycle because real estate will take you years you know um, technical development can 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 be shorter cycles depending on what you're doing uh, so that's kind of i guess what sort of changed so when the real estate market came back around i kind of was like i'm good i kind of can do this i kind of uh, enjoy where i'm going with um with career and just sort of start to do some real estate stuff on the side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a good, good balance for sure. And, and I think it's a good reminder how important that real world experience is and that real world understanding is to be a, to be a good consultant. Yeah. Um, and before I jump into a sort of a career related question or a follow-up career related question, I want to just turn back to the audience here and just sort of uh, get to some of the comments we have here. I, I had asked the question, where are you all joining from today? And a lot of you commented, um, and just to give everyone a sense of where people are joining from across the four or five live streams that we're uh, streaming to, uh, we've got someone from uh, Malcolm from the UK, uh, Photon from London, uh, Jerry from Toronto, Kyler's joining us from Denver, um, an unknown user from Johannesburg, South Africa, um, Ed from Ghana, Deborah from France, Parisa from Parker, we've got someone from the Netherlands, Charlotte, London, Paris again, Paris again, 
Toronto. So a lot of lot of global audience here today. So really appreciate everyone everyone joining. Um, we also have Sam Graham joining from Spain. And Sam's one of my favorite guests because he's he's very engaged with our with our content. And uh, also wanted to give a special hello to uh, Christian who's joining from Vietnam. Uh, this is his first time listening to a live stream. So thanks for for being here today, Christian. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope we live up to your uh, expectations. Thanks for for trying out uh, one of our live streams for the first time. Um, and then here's just an interesting question that you might, uh, or it's not really a question, it's more of a comment that you might find interesting, Khalid, from YouTube. Um, this is, I want to get into real estate development too, but want to build my career in consulting first and save up my income. Is that sort of what you did? Did you uh, kind of use consulting as a way to generate income that you could then invest in real estate or I don't want to get too far into the real estate world, but I mean, mean kind of, you know, it, 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 it definitely was consulting income was, was, was good. It was different. I wasn't, I was the most I made when I started um, to, to, to go in consulting. And if you have, if you're smart about your finances, you can save a little bit. So um, that happened. I mean, the real estate market is a lot different now uh, than uh, it was uh, then. So I think it was a lot easier to do more of uh, certainly the kind of investments I was doing um, uh, or the moves that I was making real estate wise then, but you know, now it might be a little bit harder, but yeah, you certainly can do that. I, I you know, it will just replace consulting with anything, right? You can right. save, kind of make plans, long-term plans to sort of save to get to a certain amount and then invest um, when you, when you sort of reach your target or you have enough to sort of play in, in that sandbox. Yeah. Yep. That's good advice. And maybe another question for the audience here is, you know, what what field are you in? Are you a consultant? Are you, you know, do you work for industry? What industry are you in? I'd love to hear from all of you sort of what you do just to give us a sense of uh, what what sorts of industries you all work in. So just drop in the chat if you don't mind. Uh, what What is it you do? What industry are you in? What's your role? Um, what are you looking to do? Uh, anything you want to share with us would be super interesting and helpful uh, there. So. Um, back to the questions I had, and then I'll, I'll shift. I'm going to kind of go back and forth between questions I have and then questions from the from the live audience here. Um, the question I had is, um, how is working at a company like Third Stage different from working at some of the really big consulting firms? And you didn't mention any, I don't think he mentioned specific names, but you've worked for a couple of the really big, larger, well-known yeah. consulting firms, and we're a smaller consulting firm of 50 people versus, you know, 50,000 or hundreds of thousands of people that work at some of these bigger firms you've worked at. So how is it different, you know, working at third stage or a smaller firm like third stage versus one of the big guys? Uh, it's, I think it's different in two major ways. Um, well, potentially three, but, but I think two significant one is, uh, the kind of client. Uh, so the clients that we work on here at third stage, uh, even our large clients are, uh, very different than, um, the kind of clients that you'd work with, like in a big four, once you're in the big four world, your clients are ginormous. They're, they're almost little governments and uh, the projects are extremely complicated uh, as a result. And you're on these huge teams um, where, you know, you know, one project might have, you know, 40, 50 people kind of, uh, you know, working and it, it turns into a subculture on the project itself to where, you know, you you got to deal with your own, just like you have to deal with sort of the client. And so there's a d degree of complexity there. there, there there's a degree of culture there um, that uh, can be, you know, those projects are long and, uh, you know, it, it, it can, in some cases be toxic. 
Um, uh, in other cases, sort of, you know, it pushes you because there's um, a certain level of complexity that extends beyond the application's bandwidth. Sometimes those choices are bad. So you might have an application that you're trying to build is really not a good fit for, um, for that organization. And so the projects are just all complicated. Like they're just all extremely complicated with, um, you know, just, a, just tons of difficulty around with respect to trying to fit, uh, you know, uh, a square peg in a circle or, 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 or something like that. So you have challenges there. And I think you also here, you know, with, with a smaller company, you, you, you have more engagement. So I think the engagement points, I think, at larger companies are different. Um, uh, you don't have the same uh, you, opportunity to build the kind of relationship with a client. Our clients here at Third Stage are, you know, we just have great relationships. And it's not really specific to you know, like one person. It'll just be, you know, most of the projects that I've been on here at the small level, you get an opportunity to really talk a client through to really work with the client through their decision making process and really help them get to where they need to be because that's the end target it's like we're all pushing in in a in a in a in a window here that sort of lends to client making such and such type of decision and it's not really like that with large companies you know you know you don't get those opportunities it's not about engagement it's about reaction so they're very, very different experiences. Um, but if you're more into relationships and you're more into in-game and benefit to the, uh, uh, to the, to the client then the smaller kind of consulting world kind of works more. So for me, it's more satisfying than um, kind of with the larger companies where you're just submerged in politics and grievance and you know, bureaucracy and complexity and, you know, you just feel like you're fighting a battle every single day. Yeah. And you, you're, uh, you and I both have experience with the big, with some of the big firms, but your experience is more, more recent and probably more relevant. And, and I think you spent more time at these larger firms than I did. Um, I didn't last very long. So, you, 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 you know, all right. That was Khalid Morris in the consulting hot seat from Transformation Ground Control episode number 62. So if you want to hear more of that interview, if you want to hear the complete interview, which lasted over an hour in totality, uh, you can find that in episode number 62 of Transformation Ground Control. You can go back and listen to that on YouTube um, or on whatever audio podcast platform you might be listening to this podcast. So we're going to come back after a quick break. We're going to shift gears and move out of the consulting hot seat, and we're going to bring on another external guest we had on the show, uh, another industry peer, to talk about um, alternatives to big ERP vendors and what some of the considerations are and what some of the options are you have in the marketplace. So before I give you a little bit more of a description of what we're going to cover in that clip, we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with Transformation Ground Control's countdown of the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the top 10 countdown of the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far here at the midpoint of, of the year. We're kind of looking back on the best interviews we've had so far. And one thing I do have to say is I, I do think that as the, the show has gone on, I think we've done a good job of bringing on more diverse clients or, or uh, guests, I should say, which included some of our clients, but also included some of our consultants, included some industry peers, we even went so far as to have a couple competitors uh, on the show uh, throughout the, the recent episodes. So we really try to broaden the view, the purview of not only the topics we cover, but just the different viewpoints uh, that are so important to making these transformations successful. Um, we certainly have a pretty diverse team here at Third Stage Consulting. We've got 50-some uh, consultants and counting uh, worldwide in four different offices. But we're, we're also looking outside the organization, too, to look at others and, and get their perspectives on digital transformation. And that's the case here with number eight on our list of top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. This interview, going back to episode number 58 of this podcast, was with Dan Aldridge. Dan Aldridge, I'm sorry, I mispronounced his name there. Dan Aldridge of Priority Software. And he was on the show uh, to talk about alternatives to the big ERP vendors. And we really wanted to dive into understanding, especially for larger organizations, what are your options? Are, are you sort of beholden to SAP and Oracle and maybe Microsoft Dynamics? Or are there other technology options out there that could be viable for you? And what are some of the pros and cons of going with a big ERP vendor, a big well-known ERP vendor like SAP or Oracle? And what are the downside risks of that? And same with you know uh, lesser known software solutions. What are some of the pros and cons of that? So we really wanted to give a complete view as you're considering potential software options of what some of those pros and cons and what those comparisons might be. So again, number eight on our list of top 10 interviews of 2022 so far is with Dan Aldridge talking about alternatives to big ERP vendors back from episode number 58. Let's roll the clip. What do you think in general, what do you see as some of the pros and cons of just migrating to one of those bigger known name brands, if you will, those household names like SAP and Oracle. Um, what, are, what are the pros and cons of of sort of uh, going in with those those options as your as your vendor of choice? So, uh, obvious pros would be market awareness, uh, lots of companies, references, and things um, where they're running it. Um, they tend to be the larger enterprise uh, guys that have been around since you know mid '90s or even in some cases, 80s. So there's a perception, at least, that these are very stable systems that, you know, they've had a lot of successes in the past. And, and you know, maybe friends and C-levels tend to favor the big enterprise systems if, if they're larger companies because of reputation and because of success stories. But that's so that's sort of the pros. And then, you know, it's, it's like they used to say about IBM, right? You can't go wrong if you go with IBM, and I think the same can be said for SAP or Oracle, but, you know, reality as you know it is is not exactly like that. So there's, there's it, the span of it is, is potentially huge. The cost is sometimes prohibitive, you know, and you got an on-premise system. 
event gets locked in and things like that. So the, the pros would be the name recognition, the lots of successes, but the cons would be also lots of um, instances where they ran long and they, you know, had trouble after they went live, you know, maybe shutting down business at a very extreme. Right. Yeah. You remind me of one of my favorite counter phrases to the whole, nobody ever get fired for hiring IBM or, you know, insert big company name here, Accenture, Deloitte, SAP, Oracle, whatever. Yeah. Um, the only problem with that, uh, that is you may agree. I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I can name a lot of people that have been fired for, <laughs> for picking one yeah. of those big name centers. So yeah. And they put it on their resume and they move to the next one. Right. So <laughs> your C yeah. level. Yeah. And it's, it's such a, incestuous industry too, that, you know, once you're in a vertical, whether it's SAP Oracle, or you're working with one of the big system integrators, um, you tend to stay in that space. And so you, you, you tend to drink the Kool-Aid and perpetuate a lot of the same strengths and weaknesses uh, of that solution. So I, th I think that's a, a good point you bring up there. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, um, and I'd be curious too, from the audience here uh, listening uh, with us live, you know, what are, you know, if you've been through an ERP evaluation or if you have experience with, systems other than those big names that I've mentioned so far, what are some of the systems you've worked with or, or familiar with? I'd love to hear from the audience here. So maybe just drop in the chat. Um, what, what ERP systems are out there besides SAP and Oracle, let's just say, and, and Microsoft, let's pick those three SAP, Oracle, Microsoft. I think we all agree. Those are pretty well-known, um, names, but outside of those three, you know, who are some of the other players in the space that, that, you know, should be on people's radars. I'd love to hear the audience questions. And, um, certainly we'll, we'll ask you that same question too, Dan. Um, so, so uh, before I get to your answer to that question, though, Dan, I guess just to, to take that previous question one step further or sort of shift it a little bit, um, talking about, instead of talking about the big name vendors, the pros and cons, what about the, the other vendors in the market, which is, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of other vendors besides the, the three that we mentioned. What are some of the pros and cons of working with a potentially lesser known, uh, but still viable, potentially viable product? Well, the pros are that, you know, it may be a case of just name recognition is not there and a really, really good system um, that, that, you know, um, yeah, you just haven't heard of them. I mean, for example, Priority is, is an Israeli-based company. We have offices all over the world and customers all over the world. But in, in Israel, we're essentially the SAP of Israel, if you want to say. Um, Everybody knows us. We we are the majority of the market there, um, and uh, you know it's a really good software package. It's we're here. We're all cloud. We do have the on-premise capability. So, um, but uh, we're mostly cloud, and we're we're heavily cloud. So we have global implementations that we want to do on AWS, and uh, you know implement everywhere. So uh, with uh, a company with a global footprint that's not the huge and they they can't afford the huge vendors um it's a really good option very well priced like i said heavily cloud um that's the way the market's going um really nice capabilities in in the areas of workflow so i i think the ones that are uh cloud vendors a lot of times the workflow is easy easy to use it's very uh, low code, no code uh, type of arrangement, you know, where you don't have to program like some of the big, big ones. You have to program those uh, kinds of workflows and things like that. So those can be some really good advantages. Uh, and a huge thing is is just time to implement. 
time to implement. We're talking two, three months in some cases with a small to medium sized business on a on a good ERP cloud package. Um, so if you're dealing with it because it comes up on the cloud, the versions are upgraded, customizations come along with it. Um, it's it's quite easy to implement and it's easy to use too. I mean, a lot of the bigger ones are complicated and you know uh, busy screens and all kinds of things like that. So it's easier for user adoption. And and you you talk a lot about this and, and you're absolutely right in change management is a lot easier with a smaller package, maybe a lesser known package, but a really good solid one. Um, and I think if, if they're running on AWS, for instance, that's the way we run uh, Microsoft Backbone and you don't have to maintain any of the databases or anything like that. You don't have to have a big IT staff. Um, and, and a lot of the users can configure things like reports and workflows and things like that. Simple to use workflow tool is a huge thing. Um, and a lot of the lesser known ones will have that. Yeah. Yeah. And that you know, flexibilities of use, change management, all that stuff. I mean, those are really good, good points that, that I agree with, um, with you on that. Um, so what, given that there are these other options in the market that may, yeah, maybe they're lesser known, but they still are viable and they, they have strengths in many cases that some of the other bigger ERP systems don't have. Why is it that that so many organizations get enamored by the big names? Is it as simple as what you said before, which is no one ever got fired for implementing A, B, or C, or is it, or is there more to it? Or would you add to that list of why why organizations become sort of blindly drawn to those systems? Yeah, I think it's it's references, and you know they know of other companies that have implemented it, and you know so they feel more secure in that. Um, but, um, you know, it's not necessarily the case, but I think, um, I think that, uh, our main issue or the main issue of a lot of the sort of second tier down is that, uh, brand awareness mm. simply, I mean, you know, we've been around since 1986, you know, uh, and dominate the market over there. And there's a lot of other, you know, companies also second tier that are like that you know, that, that uh, are just unknown because it's, uh, it's a big deal to uh, have a m massive marketing machine, you know, and, and have Gartner and, you know, people like that behind you in that upper quadrant, you know, it stays pretty stable, as you know, it's mm -hmm. SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, they're all, all, you know, in that top right magic quadrant. Um, and then, you know, maybe the, you know, the second tier doesn't get the same sort of uh, consideration from the big and, and, you know, when you're dealing with Gartner, you're dealing with, uh, larger companies, um, that they are only kind of looking at that upper quadrant, right? So they're not necessarily looking at the ones that are even just slightly down. So it's kind of reputation. It's kind of what the analyst firms like the Gartner say about it. And it's just safe, you know, or right. it's perceived as safe, which is, which is kind of interesting because if the time to implement is so huge, as you know, the, the things that will uh, dictate whether sometimes, whether it's a failure or, or success is the time to implement, the cost can be staggering. Um, and, you know, if you're implementing it in a sort of a modular way, instead of some of the lesser known ones that have the whole footprint, including e-commerce and, 
ERP and MES and all the things that link to it through APIs, it's a um, it's a much more uh, it's not a modular approach that some of the big ones take, right? So you you might implement purchasing and accounts payable, right? But every the other pieces are not there yet, so they're doing it in phases, and and it takes a long time and a lot of consulting resources. You're usually dealing with a partner. Whereas, you know, some of the smaller ones, they do their own implementations that they do their own product development and you get a much more personal experience, if you will. Um, and, and you get care. I mean, we're not, for instance, we're not taking people in the U.S. We're dealing mostly with our own implementations, with our own team. We have some very good partners, some big partners and some small that can do implementations. But in general, we're not taking it and putting it off to a VAR and saying, you know, put it over there and forget it. So, right. and, and I think that's, it's not just us, but it's, it's some of the lesser known ones that really have to prove themselves. They have to have a personal touch. They have to have support that, um, you know, is very uh, responsive and things like that and, and not pushed off to a VAR, you know. Right. So, in your career then what what was it that drew you personally to to the these non-household name products not not that they're you know a lot of people have heard of priority software and in for and some of the other systems you've worked with over the years um but what was it that drew you personally to the to the you know let's call it the smaller not small but smaller software vendors yeah so it it, it just kind of transpired that way i mean when i joined bond i i was recruited i got an mba and i was recruited right out of of school essentially and i had a finance background and i was recruited by bond bond was sort of new in the us and they were sort of the dutch sap if you will so um it was they were very exciting they were growing really fast uh they just landed boeing we had carrier we had all these sort of enterprise level manufacturing companies and um so um i wanted to join the up and coming one they used uh, Jan Bond, who's the founder. He always used to say, "We're number two, but we're the best." Right. You know, um, and uh, I I wanted to join the up and coming one, and and it just so happened that that one was the one. Um, and also, I'm fascinated, and I have been for you know 25 years that I've been doing this. I love manufacturing, so I was drawn to their kinds of clients, and I I got to visit many. Uh, large enterprise customers at that time. And first thing I would do is go to the shop floor. So I was a finance guy. So I did cost accounting and everything. And they'd say, go, go up to the uh, finance office. And I'd say, no, no, I want to go down on the floor and see how you build this thing. Cause I was just fascinated with it. And then I kind of fell in love with both ERP, which I, you know, still do today and manufacturing companies in particular. So that's yeah. how I got into it. And then um, so it just so happened that Infor bought Infor Global Solutions, which is kind of like that next just right underneath the enterprise. And it's in your uh, in your battle of the titans back back when you were. Do I think you still do that mm -hmm. battle of the titans. Yeah. So it's like number four. Right. So uh, they bought Bond and they uh, they have a product called Infor LN, which is. Uh, strictly manufacturing, strictly enterprise level, pretty much. Um, and I just, I, I developed a consulting firm in that and I grew a consulting firm and I just, I just loved everything about it. So again, they were, 
this next year down. And then finally, when Priority bought my consulting business in 1996, I mean, excuse me, 2016, I get my dates messed up. A couple decades after. <laughs> yeah, 2016, uh, I had the opportunity to build another one, you know, here in the US. Um, and that was a very exciting, you know, having built a couple businesses and done exits before. It was a very exciting proposition. And I saw Priority as, as this kind of like the bond, you know? It's the next one up and coming, a lot of investment recently. And that was very exciting to me. Right. Yeah. All right. That was a clip of an interview with Dan Aldridge back in episode number 58, talking about alternatives to the big ERP vendors. Be sure to go check out that episode if you want to hear the complete interview, because we covered a lot of stuff that we didn't feature in this highlight reel here. So thanks for thanks for being on the show, Dan. And that was a, that was a great interview. And Speaking of interviews and, and kind of a preview of what's coming up after a break, we're going to move on to number seven, and we're going to totally shift gears, move away from technology and software focus, and move into the first of a few different interviews that are focused on the human side of change, and more specifically, the psychology of change. I'll tell you who that is when we come back from a quick break. That'll be number seven on our list. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71, the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the top 10 ranking of the top interviews of 2022 so far. We've had three great interviews so far. We're up to number seven on our top 10 countdown. And this is the first of a few different interviews that relate to the human side of change and relate to organizational change management. And for this particular topic, I was very interested in this, this person and having her on the show because she's not just a technical consultant. She's not a technology person. She knows technology really well, but she comes at it from the human side of change. And more specifically, she comes at it from the human side of change within academia. So she works at uh, Colorado State University. Her name is Christina Serrano. And she is a professor at Colorado State University in the MIS or the IT department uh, and teaches courses there related to IT. But one of her main areas of focus and the way she views the world is in many ways similar to mine in that she views it from a human first perspective, although she comes at it from a deeper psychology understanding. So we wanted to have her on the show to talk about the psychology of change and digital transformation, looking at culture, uh, individuals, individual humans, how they tick, what makes them accept change, what causes them to resist change what's going on in their heads, how do we overcome what's going on in their heads to, to navigate that change. 
And so this is a great interview that I really enjoyed doing. I learned a lot from this, as I did with all the interviews that are in the top 10 list, which, by the way, is another uh, thing that I use to sort of subjectively rank these is if I learned a lot from the discussion or if it's something that even I didn't feel like I didn't know a lot about, um, and it was particularly helpful, um, I rated those interviews higher than others. So this is, again, number seven on our list. This is The Psychology of Digital Transformation with Christina Serrano from Colorado State University. Let's roll the clip. This is a really broad question that could go a million different directions, and I fully acknowledge it. It may not be fair as a first question or a first real question for you, um, okay. but I'll ask it anyway and see if we can do maybe a flyover view or a summary. But when you think about the time you've spent in IT and the research you've done as in the world of academia, academia um, mm -hmm. what what are some of the biggest takeaways or lessons that you have from, you know, the things you didn't know 20 years ago when you started doing this stuff till now, what are some of those biggest lessons learned or uh, takeaways from your research? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I, I'm a big picture thinker like you, so I think I might start more um, at the big picture level sure. uh, and, and then where it's brought me today. Um, and so, you know, I, I started my PhD in 2006. Um, in the very first year of my PhD program, you know, we have to learn a lot of fundamentals about research, about our discipline. Uh, and so, you know, my discipline being information systems. Um, and a lot of people confuse information systems with computer science or, you know, computer engineering and, and don't really understand the difference. And, and where I am right now, it's actually my department is computer information systems. So it makes it even more confusing. Um, but what was really clear, you know, in that first year of my PhD program is, is, you know, understanding, of course, what is information systems as a discipline? What does it mean? And our discipline is, is, essentially captures the combination of people, processes, and technologies, and how they all have to come together, work together to uh, manage information to achieve organizational goals. Um, and, you know, ideally shared goals, right, is <laughs> what we want. Um, still, uh, at that time in 2006, we, the, the field as a whole was a bit disrupted. Um, you know, around that time, it was after the dot-com bust, and uh, there were declining enrollments, um, not just in information systems, but also computer science and other computing fields. Um, and so we were all kind of in this identity crisis, uh, really trying to understand, you know, how can we remain relevant and serve the needs of um, the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my field, there were a, a slew of publications around that time, or they had come out a few years earlier when I had started the PhD program. So they were still fairly fresh. And it was kind of, you know, um, who are we? You know, what kind of what kind of things are we supposed to teach and publish? Uh, and it, the battle was really more of this holistic information systems. Um, you know, are we all of this because you know isn't that more management isn't that psychology isn't it all these other disciplines uh and so we did really hone in on the tech you know i think that's what really won the day um in that feud about who are we as a as a field and so subsequently you know every paper you submit to a journal that you you know about your research 
there is this question, where's the IT artifact? You know, are you talking about IT at all? Um, because if not, you know, maybe desk reject, you know, we, we don't want to hear it. Um, and, and I get that, you know, I get that in terms of in a business college, we have to differentiate ourselves from management, from, you know, other disciplines. Um, my sense now, uh, all these years later, is it was a pretty big mistake um, for our field to take that turn because it's really in the holistic space of people, processes, and technology and how they have to work together synergistically um, in a really a careful dance, you know, almost like a marriage, you know, um, that's where innovation really takes place. You know, mm -hmm. once you take the IT out of the people and the processes and try to look at it um, alone, you just, you miss out on, you know, a lot of the things that your, your firm is trying to do, right? When you, when you're talking about these major organizational IT implementations, it's, it's not just about the IT. In fact, it's usually the, the IT is not the problem. Usually it's usually right. in the people and the processes and that space. And unfortunately um, I do feel a lot of researchers who have been responsible for kind of, you know, researching this and teaching it and innovating in this space. Um, have done, you know, exactly what industry has done, and that's look at the tech, you know, kind of, and not look at the whole picture. Yeah, it's easy to become enamored by the technology and focus on bells and whistles and innovations in the pure tech space without looking at the people and process. Absolutely. I mean, we still will look at things like tech's impact on organizational performance and, you know, our outcome variables are still very relevant to a business. It's just, you know, we're not looking at our models holistically to account for a lot of the people and processes too, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And that's a lot of what we wanna talk about, especially the, the technology and people in particular. I think that's a lot of what we'll cover here today. Of course, processes fit into that as well. Um, but in speaking of that, I guess just to kind of shift gears and maybe dive into that a little bit more, um, Part of your research, I know, focuses on how IT impacts individual identities and cultures. Um, mm -hmm. Just what are some of your high-level observations or thoughts or learnings in that area in terms of how tech affects or, or transformation affects, we'll call it digital transformation affects individual and, um, identities and cultures and, and vice versa as well? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I first started to do research in the organizational space, I was really interested in organizational culture. Uh, and so I, I started a study, um, it's a longitudinal case study. This was actually looking at libraries um, it, because at the time, uh, it was 2006, yeah, 2007, um, I had access to a particular case, a library that had been built and open uh, and it has no books, you know, it was intentionally designed to be a bookless electronic library, still a physical space, but uh, looks very different when you walk into it. Um, and, and that actually meant everything. So we were looking at culture, uh, you know, in terms of how did the librarians adjust to this and, um, you know, what does it mean in terms of, you know, their culture as an organization in this bookless library? But what we actually found was, um, when I say we, I have one collaborator at the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Marie Pedro. Um, 
we found was that their identities, you know, it, within the culture space, identity really became a prominent theme uh, in, in, in their identity threats and how they responded to those identity threats. Um, so, you know, culture is very important, uh, but I think where my research has taken me is that within the culture space, identity is almost everything, you know, because it, 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 it deals with who we are as human beings, even in the workspace, you know, who, who are we as a librarian, you know, if I'm a librarian. Uh, and the threats to that, I found that, you know, we all respond to identity threats. We all have our, usually our default is some sort of defensive or protective type of response to start. And that's exactly what they did as well. Um, you know, they were really trying to uh, say, hey, we're still relevant in this space. You know, we're not going to be one of these groups that gets uh, sucked into de-skilling because of technology. You know, we want to make sure we're still relevant. Uh, but it, no matter what they did, they could not combat the just the misperceptions of the people they were serving. So it didn't matter how often they put up, say, read posters, for example, of you know celebrities reading books in the building. It didn't matter how often they had a portable bookmobile for checkout or you know all the things that they tried to do to say, hey, we're still librarians and this is a library, so please use it like a library instead of a computer lab. Um, it just didn't work. It didn't work and try to even, you know, change the desktops on the computers to be more like, hey, you're in a library and but their patrons still looked at them like um, directional assistants at the desk <laughs> would still ask, you know, where's the bathroom, where's the stapler? Um, and these are people with master's degrees or higher, you know, I mean, they are they are very skilled um, in their expertise. Um, so what we found is, is, is that when the masses kind of, uh, when it becomes imbued more in the societal culture, you know, because this wasn't the only place where, you know, it's becoming digitized and as a library and uh, you're now going to databases, right, to look at research. You're not pulling books and journals from the shelves and photocopying anymore. That's just not the behavior um, that, that, you know, the patrons are, are engaged in. Uh, so when that happens, there's really no stopping the train. You know, it doesn't matter what, as an organization, you try to do to say, hey, you know, we, we want to resist this or say, you know, it's still this old model or, you know. So what they had to do was essentially um, embrace it. You know, they just had to. They had to make it a part of who they are. Um, so they had to adapt their identity to uh, this new technological landscape, you know, because that's the only way to stay relevant. And, and even though this was a case study, a longitudinal case study with a library and librarians, I do think the lessons gleaned from that case study are generalizable, you know, uh, the way that consumers, the way that it's just all baked into our societal culture, uh, technological adoption, there's just there's no stopping that train, really. Um, I think organizations just have to embrace it, have to respond to it, have to understand the employees that they onboard that are even you know, younger generation. I mean, it's different. There's a different culture. Yeah. Um, and so it, culture identity, it's all very much tied together. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And um, actually, Sam Graham on LinkedIn has, a, has an interesting uh, related question, which is, 
to what extent is organizational culture affected by the culture of the country that it is in? Uh, for example, he worked in a country where it's considered rude to say no. Um, and so how do you navigate, you know, some of those geographic cultures? Because I think what you're talking about is more um, just the culture of an organization or the individual, the individual trace of a individual. Um, but how, you know, how does a geographic culture affect all this? Oh, for sure. And, and, and uh, I encourage Sam to take a look at, there's a website um, on, um, well, this was actually national culture. Uh, so I think that's what he's talking about, though, country culture, too. Uh, Hofstede is, 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 is a big name in that space. And there are researchers who will take some of his research with a grain of salt. But that's, you know, any research, truly, anything that's produced by humans. <laughs> you know, you, you, you know that there's going to be some flaws in it. Uh, but if, if you look up Hofstede uh, national culture, you, you'll find that it's even searchable. Um, it's a really great website because you can compare national cultures as well. Um, and, you know, it, so for example, it would put United States um, as a highly individualistic, uh, you know, that's in our culture. Um, it also says that in the United States, we have more of a short-term orientation instead of a long-term orientation. So that even um, filters into how we have uh, quarterly reports and, you know, shorter reporting times for some of our goal settings. Uh, but they have, there's these lots of different dimensions, even, you know, masculinity to femininity and, and, you know, that's why, you know, some of this is, has been questioned, but it's been research out there for decades. And, um, so I would encourage them to check that out, but it, it does definitely have some impact for sure. Um, even in the pandemic, we saw that, right? I think that, you know, some societies that were just inherently more collectivism in their national culture, the way that they responded compared to countries that were much more individualistic in their culture, just totally different, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't know that there's a whole lot uh, we can do to change, you know, something as big as national culture. Uh, but what Sam is saying is like it's considered rude to say maybe no in a culture. I mean, I think all we can do is kind of more educate ourselves and um, ask questions, you know. That's all I have for that, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and this this kind of builds on a point that you just mentioned as far as one of the dimensions of culture um, with uh, masculinity and femininity. Mm -hmm. um, and, that is, and this question is from Kyler on LinkedIn who asks, in honor of National Women's Day, which I didn't know it was National Women's Day. So uh, good to know. Uh, thanks, Kyler, for pointing that out. And, mm -hmm. and building on identity, how is women in technology shifting and cultural misperceptions transitioning? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're seeing a huge increase in women, you know, flooding to STEM fields yet, <laughs> but there definitely has been an uptick in efforts, you know, in recruiting and trying to be more mindful of what are the barriers. Um, you know, even at CSU, uh, the computer science department in my department, computer information systems, uh, we received a joint grant uh, through um, Northeastern University, it's from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to increase, you know, women enrollment in our programs, our concentrations, our certificate programs. Um, I mean, there's so there's there's more awareness uh, about it. I just I don't know yet if we've totally untangled all of the 
the barriers truly, you know, what, what are the real reasons that, you know, are preventing women from maybe even choosing this as a concentration or a career, uh, but also retention, you know, so, you know, keeping women in these fields is also difficult if they choose it to begin with, you know, that they'll, they'll tend to leave. Um, so turnover can be high. Uh, it's getting better. That's all I can say. <laughs> you know, it's getting better. We're working on it. Um, I hope to see a lot of improvement in this area um, in the next, hopefully, 10 years. And I imagine it's um, a lot of variation in different parts of the world and different cultures of how, how far that's come along versus not. And um, maybe in 10 years, it, we get a little bit more even uh, in terms of how we've evolved. Yeah. I think so. I mean, what we're finding is that the interventions that we would implement to increase women enrollment actually just increases enrollment period across the board, across all demographics. You know, it, it, so it's I think the barriers preventing women um, from choosing these careers are also preventing a lot of other people, whether they're women or not, from choosing these careers. A lot of it has to do with uh, stereotypes, you know, myths that we have to debunk about STEM fields. Um, so it's a lot of work to be done, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was number seven on our top 10 ranking here of the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. That was Christina Serrano, who's a professor of IT at Colorado State University, talking about um, more the human side of change, the, the psychology of change, and that's back in episode number 59. You could listen to that entire interview as well as other interviews from that same episode. Again, episode number 59 with Christina Serrano. Be sure to check that out if you like that topic. So we are going to um, actually transition into a similar discussion with another person, the second of two people in our top 10 list that are from the world of academia. Although he is also a consultant, uh, he is primarily a professor at the University of Potsdam, and he does a lot of research as it relates to digital transformation. By the way, University of Potsdam is in Germany, so I wanted to get someone with a global perspective as well. And he does a lot of analytical, quantitative research of digital transformations in Eastern Europe. So I wanted to have him on the show to bring that global perspective and more of the quantitative, academic, um, research-based view of digital transformation, which a lot of my experience and our team's experience is primarily experiential. It's qualitative. It's it's great stuff for sure, but it's not necessarily grounded in academic research. So we thought it'd be a good sort of counterbalance or an augmentation to the qualitative experiential types of discussions we typically have on the show. And so that, that made his discussion uh, particularly interesting. And we're going to have him on the show. But first, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71, the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. 
And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the top 10 ranking of the top interviews of 2022 so far on the show. And we're up to number six on our countdown here, and he is the second of two academic types on our show. You heard at number seven, Christina Serrano from Colorado State University, which, by the way, is very close to where Third Stage Consulting is based. It's about less than 100 miles from where our office is, so uh, very close to home in, in our case, as far as our U.S. headquarters, our global headquarters in the U.S. But for this next guest, the second academic type that's going to be on the show is Norbert Grenau from University of Potsdam, and he is a professor at University of Potsdam in Germany, and uh, you know, other side of the world or other continent, different perspective. He does a lot of research, quantitative research, to understand digital transformations in Eastern Europe primarily, although a lot of the data and a lot of the research he's done is very applicable in all parts of the world. So that's really why I wanted to have him on the show is to bring that global Eastern European perspective, but also draw out some of the lessons that apply to any part of the world and some of the lessons learned and best practices that he's uncovered in his research as it relates to digital transformation in in any part of the world. So this is back from episode number 51 when we had Norbert Grenau on the show talking about some of his digital transformation research and KPIs, key performance indicators and measures. Um, let's roll the clip of Norbert Grenau talking about digital transformation research. And for you then is, is maybe just give us a little bit of, of, of an overview of some of this research you've done over the years. You know, what, what does it look like? What, it, what were you trying to find? What do you, you know, what, what was the impetus for the whole thing? Yeah, we we started 20 years ago when I uh, was invited to a big German car car parts manufacturer. He made the gearboxes and I uh, I was asked uh, we have a tiny requirement to change in our uh, information system. I don't say the name of the vendor, but it's one of the main vendors of ERP systems in the world, and it's not coming from the US, but from Germany. Uh, we have a tiny new requirement, a very tiny requirement, and it costs us millions, literally millions of uh, dollars or, or uh, euros um, to fix this uh, tiny requirement. Can't there be a more adaptive? We, we coined the the word adaptive or changeable uh, enterprise system that is much easier to uh, adapt to new requirements. So that was our first um, uh, task in, in research and we came up with a lot of ideas how new architectures of ERP systems should be um, provided. But uh, to, to make it short, uh, none of nearly none of these ideas is um, 
made it into practice because we have this uh, relational database um, paradigm and uh, we have some applications uh, running on application servers and the, the data models grow and grow and grow and the data itself also grows and so the systems are becoming complex and more complex and even more complex and when you read about um, uh, missing success with uh, implementing new ERP systems, that's partly also a problem of the complexity and some, some, there are even some people outside that think interfaces between different systems are bad and you should try to integrate everything into one single system. Uh, that I, I don't know whom that helps, uh, but uh, it does not help uh, conquer or even manage the complexity. So that was the, f the first task. And then we started another thing that we are continuing to do. We count beans, not, not beans, but numbers of um, installations of ERP systems in the German-speaking market. German-speaking market is about 120 million people, so it's not, not very big, but a lot of small and medium-sized ERP vendors are located in, in these German-speaking countries. I mentioned one, I didn't mention it by name, but uh, I mentioned it by um, um, the place of birth in Germany, in Waldorf, Germany, one of the big uh, vendors stemming from there. It is, it's a huge one, the SAP, but there are many more than 300, 400 smaller ones. And then later when we looked into other countries, we see these small vendors in, in nearly every other country, whether it's South Africa, it's the UK, it's the United States. You, you can sustain an ERP business as a vendor when you have 30 to 50 people working for you. Then it's even then it's sustainable. It will it will not grow and it will not um, adapt all new technologies and business opportunities very fast. But you 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 can survive, and so we have the situation that we have three hundred different ERP systems, and that's part of my consultancy to find out which is the best uh, long term. Long term means at least for ten years for for my customers. Yeah, and on the other hand, um, perhaps we, we will come to that uh, as well. On the other hand, um, the vendors are also the, the small and medium sized vendors ask me and my team at the university. I have about uh, 45 people running or uh, working for me at the university and they ask me, we read about new technologies like like AI. Now, now the main technology where what I can overview, the, the, the ERP vendors um, make some, um, some investments in, the main technology is AI, artificial intelligence. So they, they desperately try to make more use of the huge amount of data they, they collected. And, but we, we see, um, and we can come to it in a minute, we see that there are, of course, some, some other capabilities required, not only technology, not only developers, but some, some other um, capabilities are required. So this is, um, we see the technology, we see the process, we see the business advantages, all of the business disadvantages, and you, you prepared some very nice questions. What, what are the issues? What do I recommend? Perhaps we come to that later, yeah. Right. Well, I guess just to start then, you know, that's a helpful overview of sort of the two threads or the two main drivers of, of why you started this research and what what problem you were trying to solve or what questions you were trying to answer. But when you look at um, 
just ERP implementations, digital transformations in general, what were some of the, yeah. you've been doing this a long time, but what are some of the biggest findings you have, whether they're quantitative or qualitative findings from, from your research? What are some of the yeah. biggest so, lessons? Uh, we, we can um, distinguish several phases. In the first phase, it was just um, automation. No, it was not even automation. It was just bringing manual processes to computerized processes not not very much automation but you wanted to have your your data on a computer to be able to be accessed from anywhere and uh, uh, from more people than before that was the first phase um, that went till I, I would say the early 2000s so then there, there came a phase of consolidation uh, because there was not so much um, um, innovation in the ERP area, more functionality, yes, and more uh, more specific data models, yes, but but no innovation. Then many managers in companies came to the conclusion ERP is quite expensive, and we can cut cost on ERP. We can um, lift. Um, we can. We can. We, we do not need um, a maintenance contract. We we do not need upgrades anymore. We do not need. Uh, qualified people in our company but we can always call india for uh, support and um, this is the second phase we see that a lot of um, competitive advantage vanished in this period of time and since i would say three to five years we have the third phase the, uh, and this is the taking the ERP system as the backbone of the business information processing and trying to implement uh, innovation like AI, like big data, like um, yeah, analytics and, and so on. And um, uh, but not only into ERP, but in, in other systems connected to the ERP landscape. And this is the third phase. And this, this makes more fun, of course, because if you always have cost-cutting discussions, that's, that's no fun at all, because it does not end with the vendor. It also comes to you as, uh, as a consultant. But if you, can, if you see companies that want to spend money to improve their competitive ability with IT, then the fund starts and then uh, some and, and then corona came the covid virus then uh, in some companies the fun just stopped again but uh, we 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 have some some e-tailers so so e-commerce uh, retailers um, that that did very well during uh, the covid uh, pandemic and uh, they spent tremendous amounts of money to improve their competitive ability and their to to make their processes better and uh, that's the third, third stage. Well, yeah, your your company is also <laughs> named. But this is uh, this is uh, a parallel I didn't think of before. Um, this is, stem, stems from our um, observation of nearly two thousand ERP projects in the last twenty years in in the German speaking um, countries. So these three stages, and now we are in a fun state uh, on the one hand last sentence but on the other hand some companies that thought it is not important people that know of it are not important they don't do well now they have problems they have real real problems now interesting so so the three phases then you had the uh the first phase first stage which was the uh, sort of the initial automation second stage. Oh, computerization i would call it computerization it's uh yeah 
Okay. Now we can talk. We can we can speak of of automation, but in the first years it was just computerization. Yeah. Yeah, just just taking that, manual processes and moving them yeah. to, to computers. Yeah. Second stage was cutting costs, but potentially yeah. at the expense of also cutting value, business value. Yeah. And then the Absolutely. third stage now is the sort of the competitive advantages using digital to to further yeah. their business models. What are in this third? stage that you're seeing now in the last three to five years, what, what are some of the big findings? I mean, what, what are, um, you know, what are some of the trends or some of the, the, the data sets or, or high level metrics that really stand out or jump out, um, you know, from, from your research? Um, yeah, I see the, the AI trend, uh, artificial intelligence trend is more a trend for vendors for now. It's not mm -hmm. where the, the customers, my, my customers, my, my customers from the industry ask me what um, can we, for what can we use AI? And I tell them, well, you, you need, you need the data, you need the models to, to, for prediction and you need the use cases and then you can start. And when we, but when we look at the data, it's uh, these master data management topic is uh, some some uh, topic that uh, does not work well in most companies. So they have very individualistic data sets, and um, AI in the ERP um, area doesn't work well with uh, very scarce data sets. The AI works well when you have millions of uh, unique uh, data, but not when you have uh, there a little bit and there a little bit and no, no bridge between, between it. So, so that's uh, one of the problems. What, what, uh, we have a question here in the, in the, from the audience about value, uh, the value of ERP and the value of these investments. So um, what, what, what we do, what we always try to do is to calculate the value of the investment. Um, we do this uh, of the ERP or the IT technology investment. We do this uh, while we uh, compare the actual state with the old processes and the old functions with the intended state when we have uh, automated processes and when we, when we have all system functionality available. Mm. Uh, because that is sometimes diff different when, the, when, when you use a, a system with a huge functionality, you have more functions, but system is sometimes also more expensive. And on the other hand, uh, you can get a lot of improvements like in the manufacturing and logistics when you use a smaller and, and cheaper system. So, and we compare this and when you compare this, then uh, you always can come up with some productivity gains with um, the opportunity to reach more revenues or to cut cost on um, stock uh, stocks and uh, things like that, like that. And uh, that is, um, yeah, that is, that, that, there are some, um, sums that are big so big means uh, six or seven figures and some are very small and of course no company uh, we investigate has uh, more than 20 uh, roi potentials in their processes but otherwise they would no longer exist when they when they had 100 or we we we, we come we also we, we always go into the company with about 300 or 400 questions about roi um, always, always covering one single functionality and uh, well 20 turn out as valid and then we can um, sum it up and come up with uh, some uh, uh, 
information about the potential value and this is in, in, in one case the investment is 7 million over seven years uh, seven and we can compare euro and US dollar here for 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 this um, interview uh, seven million in seven years and um, the yearly um, return on investment is about 2.5 million euro so that means in three years um, your seven years costs are covered and then you you are not only even but uh, you are better than before this information is quite um, necessary for some of the companies because they have to report to boards or to owners or the publicly noted and and then they have to um, to to figure out to, to say to um, they have to yeah, justify their investment in IT because money is always scarce and everybody in manufacturing loves to buy new machines because you can see the machine for 5 million even if the machine is not running you at least have the machine uh, standing in your factory but uh, a new enterprise system a new IT you do not see anything you you see a new icon on your browser and this is two million euro for or two million dollar for a new icon that's quite expensive so you, you it's absolutely necessary that you need to calculate the business value and um yeah we we have some experience with, with that with the, with this calculating the the value uh, unfortunately not all our customers want to have us calculating the value some say well it's evident it's self-evident that we need a new right. system and then we calculate the cost or the when the vendor calculates the cost of the new system and then they say well it's uh, quite expensive and can't we yeah can't we come up with uh, another solution and then we wished we had calculated also the business value so business value is quite important that it's possible to calculate it but you need a little bit of experience for that okay that was Norbert Grenau from University of Potsdam in Germany that's interview was back from episode number 51 where he talked for a little over an hour a little under an hour perhaps talking about some of his research and lessons learned and some of the insights gleaned from his research into digital transformations in Eastern Europe. Although, again, those lessons that he talks about are very relevant to transformation in any part of the world. So that another great interview. Again, that's on episode number 51 if you want to go check out the full interview there. So we are going to go to another part of the world for our next guest after we take a quick break. We're up to number five now, getting into the top half of our top 10 ranking here. And the topic at hand is going to be related to system integrators and how to hold them accountable and how to manage those system integrators better. And for that discussion, we're going to go to South Africa. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll play you that interview that is at number five of the top 10 ranking of the top interviews of Transformation Ground Control 2022 so far. We'll be right back with more. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the top 10 ranking of the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far on this show. And we are up to the top half now of the top 10 list. We're in the top five. So these are really the cream of the crop, the best of the best. And we just had, prior to the break, we had our guest from Germany on the show, uh, or featured a clip from the guest from Germany who talked about some of his research in academia uh, out of Germany. And now we're going to shift gears, go to a different continent, go to South Africa. And this is uh, an interview we did back in episode number 54 with Clifford Martin, who is the head of Third Stage Consulting Africa's office out of Cape Town, South Africa. And not only is he from a different part of the world, but he has a global perspective, certainly, of of how transformations throughout the world work and what some of the things to uh, watch out for are and what some of the key success factors are. And in particular, one of the topics that he and I share a passion for is this topic of how to hold your system integrator accountable. How do you manage the system integrator? How do you ensure that you are driving the system integrator and not letting the system integrator drive you and your business? In other words, how do you ensure that your business needs are front and center and the system integrator supporting those business needs rather than forcing or force-fitting a cookie-cutter approach that a system integrator might have that may not be aligned with what your needs are and what your goals and objectives are. So that's a fascinating topic to me, and as it is with Clifford, and so we wanted to put our heads together to talk about some of these topics as it relates to how to manage SIs, how to hold them accountable, how to ensure that they're aligned with your business needs, what to do if they get off track or if they start to build too much or if they bring in the junior consultants that don't know what they're doing. How do you you ensure that you, you get that level of accountability, transparency, alignment, all that stuff you need out of your system integrator. So we really wanted to dive into that topic. So back in episode number 54, we had Clifford on the show to talk about that and other things related to managing system integrators. Let's roll the clip from episode number 54 with Clifford Martin. Um, But I guess just to start, Clifford, um, throughout Africa, just like other parts of the world, and and you're based in Africa, but I think you and I both have more of a global view of just how these sorts of projects and massive transformations work. But whether it's Africa or any other part of the world, um, there's a number of failures that are caused or can be directly linked back to a failure to uh, provide oversight and management of the system integrator. Um, what are some examples of the, those sorts of failure points or maybe just help us unpack a little bit. What are some of the the, the risks or challenges that are uh, inherent in these sorts of relationships between organization and the system integrator that oftentimes leads to failure? What are, what are some examples or some of those higher priority examples that come to mind? Yes, no, thank you for that question, Eric. So, so I think, uh, you know, inherently we, we're in an industry that is focused on, I think, primarily two things, uh, selling software and installing software. And, right. and often the misalignment in expectations I feel, between the industry that we operate in and the client's own expectations. And I deliberately use the word software installation. <laughs> Perhaps I'm being a little bit harsh to their size, but essentially that is what they do. And I think often an organization is expecting a a strategic partner 
someone that's going to walk the full journey with them from, let's say, from business case to business benefit. And he's going to be them and guide them throughout that. And very often that's not the case. The, the, the primary focus of the SI is to, to deploy the software. And, and, and I think that there's often that expectation gap and a failure on the part of the client then to properly manage the SI and ensure that they get out of the deal what they're expecting. And often what the marketing material has promised them. So perhaps to start then, perhaps let me just add a little caveat to that. You know, it, it is, it, SI's play an essential role. Let's, you know, and I'm not kind of trying to diss them in any way. They do play an essential role. And certainly the ERP projects that have an SI on board are much more likely to be successful because they do bring structure and focus in a certain discipline and methodology. But once again, they do need to be managed. And I guess that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not that people want their projects to fail, obviously, and it's not that they want the relationships to, to get sideways, but oftentimes they do. Um, why do you think that is? I mean, what are, what are some of the, just in your experience, what are some of the root causes of why you think organizations struggle so much with that relationship and in, in managing those system integrators, holding them accountable, and really extracting the value they bring to the table, but not letting it get out of hand or, or go off the rails? What, what are some of the reasons for that? Yes, I, I, I think there, there are issues on both sides of the fence. And by that, I mean both in terms of how the, the way, the manner in which the SI constructs and approaches the, the particular ERP or digital transformation project, as well as on the, on the client side in terms of the capabilities that they require to ensure success. And very often, just a definition, a common understanding of what constitutes success, or for that matter, what constitutes failure, is not present and there's no common agreement around that. Certainly nothing embedded into the contract um, that talks to success. So, so I do think there are failures on both sides. And, and as you correctly state, one can never outsource accountability for success. That has to reside with the client. I think we, we, we all know and, and accept that, but so often it's not the case. So often it's sometimes I think convenient for the client to to kind of pass that buck to the SI and expect them to, to drive success. Um, and then I think, Eric, what, is, what I find it to be extremely important is, is, is the whole contract negotiation. And what are we actually bringing the SI on board to do? Because SI contracts, and, and I've reviewed many of the tier one SI contracts, they're pretty standard. Um, and, and, and I think the client needs to understand what the SI will not be doing. There are certain capabilities that, and, and we can unpack that in a bit more detail as we as we go through through the conversation. But there's certain capabilities that they simply not do, do not bring to the party. And standard SI contracts are primarily framed in technology terms and the deliverables are framed in technology terms. Whereas very often what the client is trying to do is to achieve some business outcome, some improved operational um, experience or bringing new capa business capabilities to the party or enabling their strategic objectives, whatever the case may be. So there's this disjoint between the two, and I think if 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 the client if clients do not um, very very forcefully ensure that the SI statement of work talks to what they're wanting out of the project, we already start off on a from a place where there are these misaligned expectations, and it's very difficult to bring that together thereafter. Yeah, yeah, you bring up a good point there around um, the fact that. You know, technical deliverables aren't necessarily what organizations are 
trying to get out of these transformations at the end of the day. It's certainly a key part of the output. It, you need those deliverables, but there's a lot more to it than just delivering a system that works from a, from a technical perspective. So I think that that sort of myopic focus that system integrators have, which is why you hire them, by the way, you hire them because they have that depth of knowledge. They know the software really well, whatever software it is you're deploying, but it's the other stuff outside the technology that ultimately makes the project successful, whether it's, you know, the process improvement or the change management, the architecture and data migration, the overall program management. And that's typically stuff that these system integrators don't bring to the table. It also seems like that a lot of times, tell me if you agree with this or if you have thoughts on this, but it seems like also there's there's a sort of two other dynamics at play when organizations are managing their system integrators. First of all, the organizations typically aren't experts in whatever sort of deployment you're doing or any sort of digital transformation, which is why they've hired the system integrators. So there's a, on one hand, you can understand why you hire the system integrators. They're there to sort of fill the competency gap that you don't have internally. But that lack of knowledge and that lack of experience can lead to sort of a blind Absolutely. management of the system integrator, which which can be challenging. What are your thoughts on that? Is that a dynamic you've seen as well? Yeah, such a good point, Eric. And you know, my my first my first action point is if I engage a new client, is to have some type of executive boot camp. You know, because we kind of assume that the executive understands what what a, a typical transformational ERP journey looks like. What are some of the critical phases and deliverables? Some of the critical decisions that they will be called upon to make throughout this journey, um, and 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 they don't, and it's probably unfair to expect them to do that. And, and if you look at the average ERP or digital steering committee, you know we kind of take the the, the different managers of the different business domains or lines of business and and kind of bundle them together into a steering committee and expect them to oversee and drive success. And I think that's unreasonable. Um, so one has to ensure that the that the that the executive is educated on their oversight role. And let me also say that, you know, how we define these 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 ERP transformational journeys, the default from their side is going to be defined to define it as primarily software installation or a technology project at the very least. And, um, and I think the executive's role is to take a full life cycle perspective on this and look beyond, you know. Deployment of the solution is not success. It's, a, as you correctly say, it's an enabler. So we now have the enabling technology in place, but exactly how we're going to leverage that in support of the business objectives is something that the executive need to plan long after the SIS popped the champagne cork, declared victory and moved on to the next project. So, so I think executive education and ensuring that they, that they, they stay in the game is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And and you need to know, you know, it, it's not that you or I would suggest that an organization needs to become an expert in digital transformation before they embark on one, because that doesn't make sense. Sure. And that's not realistic. Sure. But you need to educate yourself enough to know, at least enough to know what kind of questions to ask, how to push back or challenge assumptions that SIs might have, you know, they've got their cookie cutter boilerplate approach that may or may not fit with your needs. And ultimately, it's up to you to, to say, hey, you know, these parts of your methodology or your approach works, but here's what we think we need to do to modify to fit our situation. And that could be, you know, culture, cultural nuances. If, you, if you're a risk adverse organization, for example, and you, you just move slowly as an organization, there's you can't just come in and force fit a fast deployment. You've got to sort of right size it for your organization, just, just as one example. So I think just knowing enough about these implementations, being self-aware to know how we can kind of meld these two competencies together, our own internal competencies with the system integrators. I think that's a big, uh, an important point as well. 
and, and perhaps I can add to that in terms of, of if we're talking about capabilities within the organ within the client organization, you know, one often finds vendor management to be quite poor, or, or at least not at a mature level where they can effectively manage their SI and hold them to account. Um, and just having that that kind of you know level of, of professional skepticism, you talk about pushback, absolutely, because we do know that the SI part of the agenda is going to be to drive additional additional revenue often through change requests or customizations or additional functionality so having that that professional skepticism to push back and ask is this really necessary is this within the scope what, what are the implications of this is it priority can we do it post deployment um, is extremely important and then the the, the vendor management um, i think is and let me add to that as well a third capability program management especially when there are multiple si's involved or multiple projects within a broader program it's so important that the that the client organization has a mature program management, um, management capability, typical at, at PMO office, in order to pull that all together and orchestrate it and, and drive the integration and drive and ensure that there's at least a common approach, common methodologies towards a, a, a common integrated goal. So I would say those three capabilities, the, the executive know-how, the the and 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 oversight the vendor management capability to kind of manage the SI and then the program management capability from a delivery perspective to pull this all together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, just before we, we keep going with the questions here, just to give you a quick uh, overview of who's uh, where people are joining from today, I'd ask the question to open up, you know, where, where are you joining? And I ask people to drop that in the chat. Um, just a, a few examples here. Um, we have someone here from uh, Florida State University, um, in Florida, we've got someone from uh, North Carolina. Uh, we have someone joining on LinkedIn from South Carolina in the United States, uh, Columbus, Ohio in the United States, um, as well as an international audience, as I mentioned, too. We've got uh, someone here from Toronto, um, someone joining from the UK, uh, Brooklyn, New York, which is not international, at least where I'm at, but uh, still a, a global audience, and uh, someone from Kuwait, and uh, India, just as a few examples um, of, of where people are joining from today. So thanks everyone for joining and letting us know where you're at today and whichever platform you're watching on. Again, feel free to drop uh, any any questions you have for Clifford or I as it relates to this topic, and uh, we'll get to those here in just a moment. Um, so some of the issues you've just talked about, Clifford, why do you think they're so prevalent, um, not just in Africa where you're at, not just in the United States where I'm at, but throughout the world, why is this such a global challenge? It, it doesn't seem to be something that's just, you know, pockets of the world are struggling with it. It seems to be a pretty global problem. So why is that? What, what do you say the root causes are? Yes, um, Eric, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it is prevalent and, it, and, and I find it very interesting that the same issues that we're discussing now, if we were having this discussion five or 10 years ago, we'd probably cover a lot of the same crap. Yeah. So these, these things seem to be perpetuated. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we need to also understand that, that, that SIs have tremendously powerful marketing machines. They come with a very strong, experienced team. They have a, a very slick um, approach in terms of engaging and embedding themselves within organizations. And, 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 and I don't mean this as an affront to SIs. SIs will do what SIs do. I think um, the, it's incumbent upon the client to manage that, as with any vendor or partner or um, you know, with any type of project within the organization. So I do find it um, 
both frustrating and interesting that it seems to be a very similar issues that the technology changes but the issues tend to stay the same um and and i do think that i mean if we just take contract negotiation as one example you know you have a, a tier one vendor with a a big team often sitting in the background of technical people attorneys legal input and senior partners negotiating and you have some poor guy in procurement who's probably never done this before in his life representing the, the client organization it's an absolute total mismatch you know um so so, so I, somehow these issues do seem to continue exactly what the answer is i don't know but i do i do think that given in the last few years we've had a number of high public certainly in this part of the world uh, failures uh, with uh, in the erp in the transformation space um, it's public knowledge it's been in the public space some of the big tier one consulting houses have been involved um, so I, I certainly think that um, you know organizations are, are, are kind of waking up to the fact that they have to take control of these projects they have to be a, a lot more skeptical they have to interrogate things a lot, in a lot more detail um, and, and and manage it a lot a lot closer so whilst i say that the issues seem to continue at the same time and let's face it i think uh, what one also sees is that organizations appointing third parties to provide some independent pro program assurance and advice on an ongoing basis and assist them in the space so um so whilst things stay the same there, there is some some positive news and i think there is some 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 positive things happening in terms of better managing SI. that was a clip of our interview with clifford martin back from episode number 54 talking about how to hold your system integrator accountable and how to manage your system integrator you can listen to that full episode by going back to episode number 54. So I encourage you to check that out. So we're going to shift gears a bit. And after a break, we're going to move on to number four in our top 10 list. And this is a, uh, I'll give you a little hint here. This was an interview that sort of got lost in the shuffle because it was the first episode that came out in the new year, which in many ways is the worst time to release a new podcast episode because people are coming back from the holidays and uh, end of year holidays, Christmas, New Year's celebrations, that sort of thing in, in much of the world. And this episode, quite frankly, got lost in the shuffle a bit. Although I will say this interview and this episode in particular was our highest performing and our most listened to, most downloaded episode in the audio podcast platform of any show we've ever done, which is part of why it comes in at number four. And uh, just another hint as to what the topic is. It's something we haven't covered yet in this top 10 list, which is fintech. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get to that number four interview in our ranking of the top 10 interviews of 2022. So far, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the ranking of the top 10 interviews of this podcast so far in 2022. And we've sifted through dozens of interviews we've done so far this year and really honed in and and, uh, narrowed it down to the top 10 of, of the year so far. And this next interview is going back to episode number 50, which was the first episode we re- the first episode we released in 2022. And in some ways, the episode got lost, at least on LinkedIn and YouTube, where uh, people watched the episode. It didn't do as well when it first came out, although it has picked up traction since then and gotten a lot more views. However, it was the most it was and still is the most popular episode that we've ever released in the audio podcast platform. So of all the episodes we've put out, you know, 70 episodes so far. This is episode number 71. Uh, Episode number 50 was our most downloaded episode of all time so far. And and not just by a little, it was by a lot. This is by far our most popular episode um, on Apple, Spotify, uh, Google, all the audio podcast platforms. And the topic at hand was fintech in the mid-market and how to manage financial transformations and really more of a finance-centric discussion as it relates to technology and for that interview, we had Dan Maurice, who's an executive vice president at PNC Bank, which is a, a bank based out of North America. We're trying to, again, back in the global theme here, we've had uh, Europe, we've had South Africa, uh, we've had um, certainly North America. We'll have some guests coming up from Asia Pacific as well. So we've really tried to cover uh, guests from all over the world. And this guest is from uh, North America, PNC Bank. It's Dan Maurice talking about fintech and financial transformations in the mid-market back from episode number 50. Let's roll the clip. You and I know each other um, on a personal level. Our kids go, one of our, our sons go to the same the same high school uh, here in, in Denver, Colorado, where, where we're both based. Um, but you recently invited me to a, um, a, a little meeting or a, a lunch and learn sort of event that you were hosting at PNC. And you covered a lot of really cool topics related to trends in the, in the fintech space and just a, a lot of really cool stuff, which is actually part of what sparked this uh, this conversation, this live stream. And in that, you know, you did talk about um, a lot of uh, trends or the, the group talked a lot about about a lot of trends in the fintech space. So what maybe just to summarize for the audience, what are some of the the general trends that you're seeing in the fintech or financial technology space? Yeah, so I would say, Eric, over, you know, over the last several years, um, the financial services industry has evolved its offerings to meet the demands of, of customers' expectations and security needs. And, you know, we're all very familiar with the coronavirus pandemic and, and just the, the impact of, of that pandemic has really compounded the need for innovative, user-centric digital solutions. And, and this is, you know, it's likely going to be an inflection point for the financial services industry. And, and this is both for consumers and for businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, you know, as, as I said, we, you know, PNC operates in, in all, I shouldn't say all, but most areas of the financial services industry. And, you know, we've, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of financial technology companies out there. Um, and, and that's kind of where this conversation sparked from. And I will say from a banking perspective, um, it's kind of been an evolution over time on, on how these financial technologies were viewed from, from the banking industry. Um, and I'll get, I, let me, I'll just talk through that, you know, that kind of evolution because, you know, initially as they first started coming out, they, you know, banks, we viewed these fintechs as, as competition. Um, 
you know, if you think about it, they would, you know, they're, they're very innovative and, and they would focus on a single challenge that maybe a, a business or an individual was trying to solve for. And, and they would solve for that individual challenge. Um, their, their focus has always been on the user experience and creating simple user experiences. We all demand simple and our personal lives were used to simple. Um, you know, we've all got our phones where you can, you know, do just about anything with a couple of clicks. Um, and, and those personal experiences, those, we have the same expectations in our, in our business lives as well. Mm. And, you know, as we talked about that competition, I mean, I'll tell you, banks, we tried to solve for everything. Um, we would look at a situation, we'd try to build solutions that would solve for every customer need. But if you think about the range of consumers to, you know, all the way up to multinational large corporates, there's a lot of different things to solve for. So, um, you know, we tried to be everything for everyone. And, and so, like I said, it, it kind of started out as a competitive environment. Um, what I will say is that evolution, it has really evolved into partnerships. And, and where, you know, the financial technology companies, which I'm just going to call FinTech for short, um, you know, we talked about they had great solutions um, that solved these individual problems. And, you know, one of the things that they lacked was a distribution channel, because these are generally speaking, smaller organizations, startups with great ideas, great solutions. So, you know, we've got the FinTech here with the great solutions. Um, then you've got, you know, the banking side, we looked at it. Okay. So we've got the distribution channels. We've got the strict due diligence due to our regulated industry, um, which also gives us the credibility with all of those companies and, and individuals that we have, um, you know, that we have access and, and connections with. And, and we realized that, you know, well, while banks can't build for everything, um, there was a great benefit to partnering. We've got, we've got the FinTech with the solution. We've got the bank with the distribution channel and the credibility. So then we started to, you know, we started looking at how do we partner together to get these solutions out there? And then, you know, taking it even one step further, um, you know, we've got banks that are now implementing their own incubators for aspiring ideas and, and aspiring companies. And, you know, what I can say, you know, at PNC, we have an incubator we call Numo. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a place where we look at unsolved business problems and, and we look at ways to solve those problems with some of the emerging technologies that are out there. And, and I would say this, you know, this overall evolution of customer behavior, it's, it's really why we've been focused on making treasury management, um, let's call it less transactional and, and more transformational. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of the, the evolution of where things have been and the trends that we're seeing in, you know, just in the space in general. Sure. What about, so you talk about these, these very specific problems that these fintech startups are, are trying to solve and how, you know, they're not trying to be everything to everyone. They're usually a little bit smaller, more niche, more focused. What, whether it's Numo or that you, you mentioned just a moment ago or other types of technologies, what are just in general, what are some of those sort of micro uh, focused areas that, the, these technologies are trying to solve because when I think, yeah. of, I think of like AP, I think of AR, um, but these are, I think a little bit different uh, sorts of technologies. What maybe could you give us some examples of what types of technologies there are? Yeah. Well, my gosh, they're, they're countless. Um, they fit into everything. They're, they're things that we don't even realize are taking place. Um, you know, one that's, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll give an example of one that's kind of, you know, evolved fairly recently as a result of, you know, kind of the, let's call it the great resignation. Um, you know, companies are, are struggling with 
retaining and attracting talent. So anything that an organization can do to differentiate themselves from their competition, um, they're going to do it. So, you know, you think about why do we all go to work? We all go to work to get paid. And, you know, the, the problem with pay is, okay, say for instance, like you're paid every two weeks, like you've earned that money, but you're not going to get it paid for two weeks. So people have, you know, that you fall in hard times. You're, you're at the grocery store and you realize you don't have enough money in your checking account to pay for your groceries. You've got more, you have more groceries than, than what you, um, than what you have in your account, but you know that you've earned the money from your employer. So, um, you know, this is earned wage access is something that's new to help solve for that. And basically what it is, it, it gives, companies, it gives employees the ability to go online or, or look at an app on their phone and say, um, you know, I've, I've worked five days, I've earned $1,000, but I'm not going to get paid for another week. They can, it's almost like, a, I don't want to call it an advance, but because it's your money, you can get paid that money right now on the spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been, that's been a, a huge evolution here, you know, fairly recently. And a lot of work has been done in that space. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's countless other examples, but uh, it's it's uh, that that one I would say is probably one that's gaining a lot of traction right now. Yeah, so it's so a lot of this stuff is going beyond just your typical accounts payable, processing accounts receivable. I mean, you're, you're getting into sort of solving, I guess, not just business problems but also consumer problems too. Is that is the scope of fintech? Is it is it uh, is it consumer based and business based? Is it kind of covering both both sides? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, just think about, um, you know, like transferring money from, uh, you know, if, if uh, we go out to dinner and I want to transfer, you know, you, you pick up the bill and I want to and I want to pay you my half for it. I mean, there's apps that will allow you to split those bills. Um, you know, just if I want to send you money directly, I can leverage the Zelle networks as a, as a consumer to send you money on that. Um, there's, you know, and, and as you look at Zelle, it was originally person to person and now that's expanded for you know business to consumer it's a you know just a network where banks are actually partnering together to make it easier for people to transfer money mm. very cool good um so when you look at the the mid market which is where i know uh, from what i understand pnc focuses on the mid market and our company third stage consulting focuses on the mid market as well so we sort of have that common um target audience or target market on, on the business side, how do these sorts of technologies that you're talking about, how do they help these mid-market companies grow or how can they help them grow? Yeah. So, you know, I think the biggest thing is, uh, you know, these are, you know, things like this, solutions like this allow companies to focus on what their core competencies are. You know, you think about how do you make money as an organization? And, you know, this is almost like, a, you know, let's look at as, you know, like, outsourcing or leveraging technology instead of people to complete routine non-core tasks so that so that your organization can focus on yeah, i guess focus more of your resources on the activities that make them money um you know we, we talked about the great resignation like trying to differentiate from an employee standpoint this gives an opportunity to make the work that people do more rewarding. So they're not focused on these non-core, or I shouldn't say non-core, but maybe repetitive and, and non-exciting, not rewarding tasks. It makes the work more, more rewarding um, where people can focus on those things that are more value added um, mm-hmm. and, and more in line with the strategic vision of the organization. Um, you know, it's, uh, 
you know, I think it also, we talked about, you know, replicating our, our personal experiences, well, everything that we can do from our phone, those simple experiences, um, you know, I'll probably come back to that a couple times, but giving employees the same simple experiences that in their business lives that they're used to in their personal lives um, and, and just what we've come to expect. And, um, you know, I, I think about, you know, retention, um, you know, I'll come back to that a lot because every organization I talk to, every company I talk to, that's, that's the, you know, one of the biggest things they're trying to solve for. But we've, you know, I've seen people, I'm sure you've seen people too, that have made decisions to leave organizations because they felt it was just the work was too manual. Um, things were too disorganized. It just wasn't, it wasn't the experience that they wanted to. So they figured they'd go somewhere else and try something different. So, it, you know, it's also, it's a retention thing as well. Um, and, and, you know, these examples, I mean, that's really, that it underscores kind of what we've been focused on as an organization, um, you know, just, and I'll talk for a little bit about PNC, um, you know, one task in, in specific when it comes to finance is uh, cash forecasting. And, you know, up until fairly recently, cash forecasting has been a very manual, labor-intensive, time-consuming process. Um, and, you know, what we've done here is just leveraging artificial intelligence, machine learning, company historical data. We've, um, you know, we've developed a way that, um, that you can actually streamline that whole process. Um, it's, you know, we call it pinnacle cash forecasting, but, uh, you know, the, the goal of the whole project was to give treasurers and, you know, organizations more time to actually use the, the cash forecasting versus just spending time building it. So, you know, that's really, it's, it's making people more effective and efficient in, in their jobs. And they, they can spend more time thinking and analyzing versus trying to figure out what the forecast is and, and manually collecting all that data or manually pulling it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Spreadsheets. Listen, Excel is great, but uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to do that stuff. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, we want, we want those folks focused on strategy. Yeah. Especially if you're a CFO or a controller or, you know, kind of a high level finance or accounting person, that that's, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Now, what about, um, when an organization is going through any sort of financial transformation, whether it be technology changes or process changes, organizational changes, or all of the above, what are some of the um, what are some of the biggest risks that you see and that your your customers are seeing? Um, you know, I think there's there's a couple things. Uh, you know, I think the the biggest one that uh, you know that I that I see frequently is the misperception that adding technology will fix a broken process. Um, just simply adding technology into a broken process will, sometimes it can, but a majority of the time, it's not going to fix a broken process. Um, really what, what needs to be done is, uh, you know, organizations need to address the inefficiencies in the process, like find out where the problems actually exist um, you know, that's going to give you a much better picture of where those problems are. And then you can look to supplement or fix those problems, like fix the problems first and then supplement with technology. Um, because, you know, what you could end up doing is just adding technology to a broken process, which just compounds the problem. Mm. Um, another thing that, uh, you know, that I've seen, and I don't know, this is, you know, fairly recently, but, uh, 
you know, trying to incorporate too many different technologies um, or too many vendors into, into a process. Um, you know, for instance, like, let's just say, you know, let's just say that you've got six different technologies to, to help solve a problem. Um, if something breaks within that process, like it, it's, uh, you know, you think about your employees, your staff, they're not really going to know who to call. And, and you end up in a situation where there's a lot of, there could potentially be a lot of finger pointing. Nobody wants to say that it's, you know, it's my problem. They're going to say that it's somewhere else in the process. And if you're just trying to fix the thing and you don't know who to call, can get extremely frustrating for people. Um, you know, another, you know, another challenge by, you know, having too many different, you know, too many different technology is you start running into integration issues. You know, one thing may not talk to another just exactly how you want it to. Um, you know, that kind of ties back to the same thing with six different technologies. And, and I'm just using that as a, you know, random example, but um, you run into those integration issues when things don't talk to each other. And the end result is the opposite of that simple experience that we're really going for. Right. Um, you know, the, the other is, you know, just making sure that you vet out what you're really looking for and what you're trying to solve for. And, um, you know, the, let's call it the, the strength and stability of, of who you're working with. There is a lot of consolidation in the, in the space, in the FinTech space specifically, because there's new organizations popping up every day. And somebody may come up with the best solution for the, the single problem that you have, and you may end up going down a path and you might buy that technology to fix that problem. Um, only find out six months, a year, 18 months down the road, that organization gets acquired because they did such a great job. But the acquiring company decides that, you know what, this isn't going to be one of our core areas. And they just discount, they, they stop supporting that, that particular piece. So, um, you know, then you're left looking for another one. So I would say making sure that you vet out, you know, who you're going with. Um, it, it's, it's really important. And, you know, I will say like, these are the issues, like these things that we've seen. Um, that's exactly why we've been investing significantly in, you know, in our capabilities at, at PNC, just trying to build a platform that's nimble, that's secure, that's seamless for our clients. Um, you know, we, the, you know, the incubator is, you know, that's a, that's a big part of why we developed that incubator so that, it's, you don't have to, so companies don't have to try to figure out like, who should we work with? Let the banks do the vetting. We're, we're heavily regulated. So let us vet these companies out. Um, and, and then you kind of help yourself out a little bit. So, yeah. and, and listen, like these things that I'm sharing with you right now, that's not always the case. Like there's some very, like there's some great organizations. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what, what's being developed. So it's, it's a very, you know, for, for in the payment space, it's very exciting. Yeah. All right. That interview was with Dan Maurice of PNC Bank talking about fintech and financial transformation. You can find that complete interview back in episode number 50, which was the first episode we released in 2022. And again, as I mentioned before, the most popular audio version of our podcast that we've released so far. So that is a big reason why the interview with Dan is at number four on our list. So we're going to shift gears a bit, move away from fintech and get back to the people side of change. And this guest is someone that's fairly well known. Uh, I, I think he's very well known, but maybe not as well known as the organization he works for. And he's going to be on talking about change management. So that's the only hint I'm going to give you for now. We're going to take a quick break and I'll tell you who it really is. When we come back from a quick break, you're listening to Transformation Ground Controls. 
top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. This is the top 10 ranking of the top interviews of 2022 so far. We're into the top three now, and uh, three is a uh, somewhat of a superstitious number for me because of the company that I founded and worked for, which is called Third Stage. So anytime I see the number three, uh, it sort of triggers a, uh, a very strong reaction from me, whether it's an athlete that wears the number three jersey or you're doing a top 10 ranking, you get to number three. Number three always has a special place and meaning in my heart for that reason. And so number three is a very special place to be. Not only in the top three, you're, you're pretty close to number one. And uh, this is a guest that I loved having on the show. I actually uh, tried for, for a while to get him on the show. Uh, he's a very busy person, pretty well-known person, does a lot of thought leadership and speaking, which is why he was somewhat difficult to nail down uh, on the show. But he was very gracious and put, did, a, did a great interview. I really like this interview. Um, this is Tim Creasy, who's the chief innovation officer at ProSci. And if you don't know what ProSci is, ProSci is an organization that provides training and certification for organizational change management professionals, uh, both consultants and internal people that are that are going through any sort of change or involved in any sort of change. And uh, it's, ProSci has become somewhat of a gold standard for those that are trying to further their careers within change management or just learn about change management or just effectively manage change. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about change management, and more specifically, the future of change management, where we are now with the world of change management and where we're headed. And one of the reasons I really like this uh, discussion is partly because he has such a strong following that we got a lot of engagement in this interview, in this episode. Um, he's a very good uh, interviewee. He, he's just really good at storytelling. He Just the way he speaks, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the way he speaks, his, his, the inflection of his voice and just... I'll, I'll let you see for yourself, but there, there's a lot to like about this interview. And this is uh, Tim Creasy back in episode number 55. Here's a clip of him talking about with me about the future of change management. Let's roll the clip. I kind of turning to the audience here, um, just some, where some, some of the people are joining from today. We've got Justin from Pittsburgh. Th thanks for being here, Justin. Uh, Robert is the one on LinkedIn who's, who's watching on a treadmill, which is great multitasking. Um, talking about leading change, you've got to be able to, to multitask, and uh, that's a good uh, demonstration of it there. Um, Dubai, we've got a, a couple people from Denver. Um, so thanks for being here. We've got Ukraine. Um, I won't I won't show and list them all, but there's there's a global audience here. I, I know we've got Dubai in here as well. Um, Ghana, Spokane, Washington, UAE again, um, as well as another one from Denver and, and Africa as well. So um, thanks for being here today. And in fact, um, it, one of the uh, just kind of an interesting comment that just came up here uh, on LinkedIn is just you can't lead big changes without ProSci. Um, and that's a, that's a great 
uh, testimony for someone who, by the way, also answered that they are certified in ProSci. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe just to start, um, you know, when you when you look at the ProSci program and, and you guys deal with these organizations all over the world, um, and, and by the way, before I get into this question, and this relates to a, a comment here that's on uh, LinkedIn, um, you guys are a global, you offer this on a global scale, right? As far as the training, um, we've got a comment here that ProSci needs to step into Africa, but I, I believe you can get certified from Africa. Can you, can you not? Yeah, ProSci has, uh, again, uh, humble beginnings, right? In a small warehouse in Northern Colorado uh, is kind of where I started. We now have a physical footprint uh, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, and Spain and Portugal. Uh, but there is an affiliate network around the entire globe where you can access ProSci training programs. So within Africa, we have several partners. Uh, and if you Google ProSci Global Partner Network, uh, you'll track down information about uh, Cedar and uh, and Change, uh, our friends that are down that way. Great, great. So I guess just to jump into here um, about you know the the problem statement that that you guys are trying to solve with with ProSci. And that is that the change is hard in general. Or if, if this was easy, you and I probably wouldn't be in business, quite frankly. You and I would probably be doing, you'd be in economics and I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this probably. So, so change is hard. Organizations struggle with it. Why, why is that? You guys, you've seen so many organizations, you've certified so many people that are thirsting for, for learning about change. But why is it such a difficult discipline? Well, I think it gets back to that notion. And I've been talking about the two sides of the change coin, right? But there's a technical side of every change where we design, develop, and deliver a solution that meets the need, the issue, the opportunity in front of us. You do a lot of work with your clients doing ERPs, right? That's one flavor of technical solution. CRMs would be electronic health records in a hospital, merger, acquisition. Even a new value system is a technical side of a change, right? Hmm. The people side of the change is how do we get people to embrace, adopt, and use whatever that solution is. And although in this change discipline, if you've been a practitioner and you hear it called the soft side of change, you know, it just makes your skin crawl, right? Um, because I think the reason it's hard, Eric, is that this is the harder side of change. The technical side of change can be incredibly complex. Merging two big organizations, absolutely. There's technical complexity in terms of pulling this financial systems together, branding, blah, blah, blah. The real hard side of the change is getting people to step into this new way of working. It's mm -hmm. helping individuals navigate, step out of where they are today, step through whatever that transition, the liminal movement is going to be, and step into um, that new way of being. And so I, I think the reason it's hard is because the people side of change is the harder side of change. Now, historically, in a value system where your employees were incented for just you know asking how high when you told them to jump, you know, predictability, consistency, that was the value system historically. Um, change was easier then because the values aligned with what asking somebody to do something different. But new value systems over the last 20 years, the emergence of, you know, the, the interaction economy out of the service and knowledge economy, uh, these things have all amplified the people side of change as something that we cannot just leave up to giving the right uh, commands but it's really around helping people navigate uh, navigate that journey. And I know we're gonna end up talking about the pandemic too, but the pandemic just amplified. It made the people side of change impossible to ignore. If you were one of those organizations or projects that did ignore it and leave the people side of chance, change to chance, you know, historically. Yeah. Now, 
because we have a global audience, I, it might be worth asking, you know, a lot of those dynamics you just described as far as the difficulty of changing and, and um, you know, the, the fact that in the past, maybe you could say jump and people just say how high and that's not so much the case in today's uh, organizational cultures. Do you see differences in different parts of the world or just differing organizational cultures and how these pro side concepts are applied or how they navigate change in general or, or how does that affect you know, either a global culture and or an organizational culture, how does that affect, you know, your, your change journey? Yeah, I think you're spot on because I think culture is critically important. Um, I do get a little bit provocative here. I'll say that uh, culture is never the villain when a change fails and it's never the hero when a change succeeds. Uh, we're big, big Marvel fans at our house, right? So uh, culture is neither Thanos nor, nor Captain America. Um, Culture is, it, it's the water in which we're swimming. Uh, and so I think great change practitioners, it's their job to understand, adapt and adjust to the culture into which they're bringing to life this particular change. So I guess kind of that's my first bent. I do think culture, it, certainly we get geographic variation in culture, but inside of organizations, we also get tremendous variation of culture. Um, just because of the you know the values, behaviors, beliefs, we unpacked this with research. You know, this is kind of an interesting full circle notion of, of kind of the story of ProSci, where we have a, a an attunement to the market, uh, a an an understanding that change agents would like to better understand the culture they're stepping into and how it impacts the change journey they're about to attempt to navigate. And so we looked at a number of the different uh, studies, the work that was done on organizational cultures and came up with six cultural dimensions that impact how change comes to life. Because um, my other beef on the culture equation is that any of this kind of value laden, like good, good culture, bad culture, uh, culture is. And if it's not aligned with what you're trying to achieve as an organization, then you need to go about nudging the culture. It, it But it's, it, you know, so that's, I hate the good, the good, bad stuff kind of drives me crazy. So instead we went spectrums because change is kind of come to life different, right? So you take the first one to be, uh, let's say uh, uncertainty avoidance as a spectrum. Some organizations have a very low uncertainty avoidance, a high tolerance of ambiguity. Others have a, uh, the flip side, right? Neither is good nor bad, but they impact how change comes to life. And so we built a body of research that's contained in the ProSci, you know, body of knowledge that says for each of these six cultural dimensions, individualism, collectivism, what are the challenges uh, of bringing to life change in an individualistic culture? And what are the adaptations you need to make as a change practitioner? Hmm. What about for a collective culture, right? Uh, power distance, is the organization this high or this high in terms of the orientation of where people think they need to get permission? Um, neither good nor bad, but this organization requires different change tactics than this organization. And yeah. so that's what we've built out in the research is this whole set of, for each of these dimensions, what are the challenges and adaptations you would make depending on where you live in that, uh, in that cultural phenomenon. Culture is gonna be really fascinating going forward, I think, because you know, I've spoke a lot in the last couple of years about the involuntary digital transformation. Mm -hmm. that, that's what happened in March of 2020, right? for all the talk of all the executives, of all the clients you help, right, about uh, digital transformation leading up to March 2020, 
uh, they were mostly enamored with the technological revolution. Uh, and then all of a sudden we saw the digital transformation happen during this instantaneous work from home experiment. Um, the cultural transformation that organizations have in front of them cannot be allowed to be involuntary, right? We need, we need to make sure that we step out in front of shaping the organizations that we want to, to live in and be part of as organizations going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it creates that thing that change initiatives oftentimes historically struggled with, which is that burning platform for change. Like, why do I, if I'm an employee working for you, Tim, why do I need to change? I mean, why do we need to change? Why are you doing this to me? You know, that, that sort of thing. And it sort of takes that conversation off the table and makes it a little less personal and more like this is, we're all kind of in this together and we're all trying to figure out how to, how to navigate this new post-pandemic world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just a, a uh, just a couple of comments here. One that's sort of relevant to what we were just talking about, and that is from uh, Malcolm on LinkedIn. Um, so his comment here is that uh, many companies will happily spend money on consultancy and technology. And there's a there's part two here, um, but not on education. Why and training? How? Um, so I guess that begs a question, or maybe I'll sort of spin that into a question that it triggered is. So companies are spending all this money on technology because they have to, or you know, it's that involuntary transformation that you're talking about. Um, they spend all this money, in many cases, tens of millions of dollars for, for a larger organization, maybe even more for a really big one. So, uh, but they're not spending the, a lot of them are not spending adequate time and money on the education and the, the overall change management. What, it, it sort of goes back to my first question. Why, why is that? I mean, why do you, is it, a, is it a blind spot of executives? They just don't, understand anything beyond the soft side of change that you were talking about or what, what do you think that dynamic is yeah and i think uh you're right and i had to build on malcolm's comment the other one that we watch uh, organizations fall into is we never find the money to spend to do it right the first time yeah but we always find the money to do it the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time and so i think a lot of this is around getting smarter with how we're going to implement change and position change in the organization. One of the things we started to do, Eric, back in about 2013, 14, we introduced our ROI of change management, a calculator, a whole frame. But um, I wrote a paper one time, I never published it, I think I should. It's about, for human beings to make sense of anything, we need context and contrast. So here's a new idea that I'm trying to help you understand. Con text is how does it relate to the stuff around it contrast is how is it similar or different to the something i already know and i think when we talk about the value of change management we've unfortunately done it in absence of the context of the real value it's going to create hmm. and so we started to really work to shift this language to um i started using the phrase people dependent project roi hmm. What percentage of the project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the solution? It's somewhere between zero and 100%. Um, and one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world is when people use the word literally incorrectly. But if you want to watch a project leader's gears or a senior leader's gears start to turn, ask them what percentage of this project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the change. And for our most important, most strategic projects, that number is 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, right? Out of the gate. Hmm. And then we can ask the second question, which is what are we investing in driving the adoption and usage of the solution? And often it's we have $500 for mouse pads and coffee mugs. 
and so we've created that cognitive dissonance, right? That so much of the value of the change depends on adoption and usage, but historically we've not right-sized our investments in supporting the adoption and usage of that change. Um, and I think, Eric, this is, you know, a couple of the, my fun turns of phrase here uh, that I played with is getting past the head nod. Mm -hmm. So that's one, right? Because, um, you know, 20 years ago when ProSci was really at the beginning of that change management journey, change management was still kind of the crazies in the corner. We hadn't even got the head nod. But over the last 10, 15 years, you know, things have certainly shifted. And so now you're like, oh, we need some change management on this. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. And I need an hour on the agenda. Whoa, 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 whoa. You need an hour of my time? I told you this change management stuff sounded good, right? Uh, and so getting past the head nod is that, you know, it sounds good until, no, you need me to do something different. Uh, and that's where we test. Are we dealing with a passive buy-in? You know, mm -hmm. I'm passively bought into change management or active buy-in by that senior leader, that they're willing to take the steps and make the investment to support the adoption and usage of the of the change. The other position positional shift that we'll work, here, work at here is, you know, that change management's an investment, not an expense. Yeah. If we see it as an expense line, uh, it gets LIFO'd all the time. And do you have any supply chain background? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the audience does. LIFO is last in, first out, or it's a way to manage uh, inventory. It's also, unfortunately, what happens to change management on the agenda, on the budget. That if we've not anchored our value to the achievement of the project ROI, we're the last on the budget, the first off the budget, last on the agenda, first off the agenda. Um, but as soon as we start to anchor to the percentage delivery of that, that project ROI, um, that's the position shifter. I, have, I was working with this team, Eric. So uh, a team in an IT, right? IT project team rolling out a big project. We sat down with them and we all did the uh, CMROI calculator. So the change management ROI calculator. We go through and you put in all of the benefits and objectives of the project, how people dependent each one is. You do this big weighting. Uh, out at the end comes the number 62%. So the team collectively arrived at a calculation that 62% of the project ROI depended on adoption and usage. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a betting man, but I would put money on the fact that it's not 62%, right? Fire. Just based purely on statistics, it's more likely 61 or 63 or 60 or 64, or like just a normal distribution. Um, but all of a sudden they had a label, right? They, and they began talking about the 62% in meetings. You know, are we, do, how are we doing on the 62%? Do we think we're lined up? Are we ready to, you know, do we have that part of the organization moving to make sure we capture this, the 62%? They had a label for this concept of the people dependent portion of the project ROI. And it unlocked the conversations, it unlocked mm -hmm. the way that they began to intentionally engage the people in the organization. Because it wasn't just a communication and a training plan anymore. It was what do we do to make sure we capture the 62% of this transformational technology we're rolling out. And so that, you know, that that context shifting, I think, is where we get out of the, well, we don't, is it nice to have maybe? Um, I also think the pandemic proved that change management is not a nice to have anymore as well, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it disrupted people's worlds in a way that I think a lot of people can sort of see it and feel it and understand it a little bit better. But you have, you know, you, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of at, before, which is that you, you're, you're talking about 
you know, h- hanging your hat or, or being able to latch onto a number like that 65% uh, or whatever the number is for any organization. It's X percent of the business value is tied to people. And I think that's that's really interesting because I think a lot of organizations struggle with the inverse of that, um, which is sort of what you were saying before, which is, um, you know, the, 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 the soft nature of change management in that yeah, yeah. a lot of times a, an organization will look at a hard dollar figure like this transformation is going to cost us $10 million. Let's just say we're going to pay $10 million for new technology and a system integrator to implement it. That's a re- that to them. That's a very real number. But then you start saying, well, and then we're going to spend half a million dollars, a million dollars on change management. Then it's like, well, back to your LIFO point. Um, but or we could cut that million dollars and only spend $10 million instead of 11. But the problem is that $10 million is not that's not a real number. That's that's a it's a number. But that number is not going to materialize that way if you don't invest in change management. So that's the other thing, too, is like it's not <clears throat> value you're trying to get. It's also even more short sighted than that. It's like just that $10 million could quickly turn into $20 million if you don't spend that million dollars or whatever the number is on change management. And so it's like it, yeah. I find thing too, you've got to counter that same concept you just described. You have to counter that on the cost side of other non-people aspects of the change as well. Have you seen that? Absolutely. Before? Oh, for sure. Because you know what the two most costly letters in the project world are? What? R and E. Rescope, redesign, oh. retrain, revisit, replatform, reteam, retreat, resign, right? So that was a clip from the interview with Tim Creasy of ProSci talking about the future of change management. That's going back to episode number 55. So if you want to hear that full interview, I encourage you to check that out. There's a lot we didn't get to in this clip we just played for you that you will hear back in episode number 55, where the audience that was listening to that interview live asked a lot of questions. We had a ton of questions that came out, especially toward the end of the interview. So I encourage you to go back to episode number 55, listen to that full interview with Tim, and uh, check that out. So we're up to our our top two interviews here. We've got two left, and our next one is going to shift gears again. We're doing sort of another 180 here. We're moving away from just the people side of change and getting into, let's call it industry 4.0 and manufacturing automation. That's sort of the focus. Uh, Very good speaker and guest that is more recent uh, in one of the real recent episodes of Transformation Ground Control. I'll tell you who it is when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. We're here talking about or playing you clips from the top 10 ranking of the top interviews of 2022 so far. And in this uh, number two slot, we have someone that was actually on just a couple episodes ago. Uh, We've done 70 episodes so far. This is number 71 that you're listening to now. 
This is just going back a couple weeks to episode number 68 when we had Walker Reynolds from, uh, he's, he's part of two different organizations, 4.0 Solutions and also Intellic, which is a industry 4.0 system integrator. Both organizations, both companies he works for are, are his companies and uh, they both do industry 4.0 and manufacturing type stuff. So I wanted to have him on the show to talk about Industry 4.0. And uh, Walker Reynolds, who's the CEO of 4.0 Solutions, is has a strong following. Uh, he has a uh, very popular YouTube channel, and that's actually how I found him. Um, I have a fairly popular YouTube channel, as does he, and we sort of cross paths on YouTube and really like his style. I think we have similar communication styles and similar ways of trying to, to dumb down or, or to bring complex buzzwords and stuff that doesn't mean anything, bring it down to reality and make meaning of it. I think that's something that he and I share in common. And so really enjoyed the conversation with him. He has a good following. We had a lot of great engagement in, in the live stream interview that we did with him, which is why it's at number two. And if I had to rank the interviews based on personal stories and personal backgrounds, I'd for sure put him at number one. Uh, if we we're only basing it on that, he has an amazing, uh, tragic and heartbreaking story in some ways, but in other ways, the way he positions it and describes it, as you'll hear uh, in the full interview, um, he, he turns it into a positive. So um, you're not going to get the full story in the clip um, that you'll have to listen to the full episode uh, back in episode number 68. But I want to play you a clip here where he talks about some of the essence of what we wanted to cover with him, which is Industry 4.0 and how manufacturers can really make that jump into the future of digital transformation. So let's roll the clip with Walker Reynolds, who's number two in our ranking of top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. Um, but just to start here, um, just to maybe set some context, you, you mentioned Industry 3.0 and Industry 4.0 throughout the conversation so far. Maybe just help us understand what is Industry 4.0 and how is that different from the way things worked back in the 80s when you were first, when you're talking about Industry 3.0? So, yeah, it's... It, so very important to note, Industry 4.0, the term actually started out um, in the, the early 2000s. There's a, there's a holy war in, in, our, uh, in, in our industry. What is Industry 4.0? There is a camp that says Industry 4.0 is the specification written by the EU to tell manufacturers how to um, use data, right? How to capture data and use data. And there's this whole maturity model, and it starts with computerization and all this stuff. That's all horseshit. It didn't work. The EU all says it didn't work. In fact, the EU, there's all reports now that says, listen, this was that that standard wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That doesn't mean that the people who wrote it don't know what they're doing. It was that they just took the wrong step first. That's all it was. Industry 4.0 starts with education, right? That's where that's what it is. What is Industry 4.0? It's the fourth industrial revolution. As a so as a sociologist, what I know is that our industrial revolutions are they are they're not something human beings created they are they are a natural evolution of progress period if you create if you create intelligence on another life on another planet and they're not human beings they will go through five industrial revolutions okay we we know they'll go through five dust mm -hmm. and they'll happen at the exact same interval and they will and they'll happen in the exact same order so the third industrial revolution was the automation of manufacturing processes so if we start with Number one, number one, industry 1.0 was really the steam engine. Uh, industry 2.0 was the assembly line. Industry 3.0 was the automation of industrial processes. It was the automation of the equipment that's in the assembly line. 
Right. That was that was done two ways. Number one, relay logic, which is just wires and ice cube relays. And number two, with computers. And and at the back end of industry 3.0, you put programmable logic controllers on all these machines. And th and those programmable logic controllers created massive amounts of data. The fourth. But nobody captured it. Right. <laughs> they, didn't were, they didn't know what to do with it. The data is on the equipment and they and, and they're and they're tens of thousands of events, right? So uh, what is data? It's something that happened and when it happened. Digital data means it's 99.99999% accurate and it comes from a smart thing. The fourth industrial revolution really started right around 2000 and it was the ability to collect the data, collect the data and transform it into information so that you could automate business processes. So the fourth industrial revolution is just this space and time that we're in. Now, it's important to understand Moore's law, which is Moore's law applies when it comes to the industrial revolutions, which is each industrial revolution, each subsequent revolution is half as long as its previous one. OK, so the the fourth industrial revolution is only running from about the year 2020 or 2000 to 2032, give or take ballpark. OK, the fifth industrial revolution, which will be augmented reality and virtual reality, that is we're walking around with a heads up display. And every physical thing we look at, we have digital data over will be in both the metaverse and in the real world at the exact same time. That's the fifth industrial revolution. Right. Um, that will start right around 2032 for real in earnest. OK, so most manufacturers have another 10 year window to get this to, to become a smart company. OK, to smart, become a smart company and then from the by extension from a smart company become a data company all manufacturers full stop during the fourth industrial revolution will have one of three things happen to them number 1 they will go out of business okay number 2 they will get acquired by another company who becomes smart or number 3 they will become a data company i see this thing on twitter all, all the time these stock analysts tesla's overpriced right here, Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. Well, not today, but it will be again, right? So Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. The next 10 biggest auto manufacturers combined are worth a trillion dollars. Does anyone think Tesla's overpriced? And my answer is, hell no, you're an idiot. Tesla's not a car company. Tesla is not a car company. They are a data company who makes cars. Their primary commodity is the Gigafactory, which doesn't have to make cars. It can make anything. The Gigafactory is designed to make anything, okay? It is an infrastructure. Giga is an infrastructure. It's not a manufacturing facility. It's not deterministic, okay? And number two, they're a data company. The car is merely the vessel through which Tesla collects its most valuable commodity, which is data. If you don't become like that, you are dead. That yeah. is what the fourth industrial revolution is. And it wasn't possible really until about 2000. We, hit, we needed networks. We needed smart things and we needed software to put it all together. And that's when it happened. Right. So it's interesting to hear you sort of put that in context, not just the historical context, the context of where we are today, but also where we're headed in the future from 2032 on with industry uh, 5.0. Um, that's super interesting. And it's interesting to think about those organizations that are still stuck in industry 3.0. You think of all the companies out there, and I imagine you probably consult with a lot of them too that they haven't even come close to getting to industry 4.0, which is a prerequisite, by the way, to getting to 5.0. You can't just, I assume, you're not just going to jump from 3.0 to 5.0 someday and just, just wait till that next wave. Nope. 
<laughs> you have to become you have to become a smart company in order to become a data company. And you have right. to be a data company to go through the fifth industrial revolution. And and the question is, what do manufacturers have to do? And, and you know, honestly, it, it's not that hard. It, I mean, it's painful, but it's not that hard. There's a playbook for doing it. The problem is, is that the the playbook that the 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 most of the OEMs that manufacturers are going to are not going to OEMs who give a shit about your digital strategy. They're not even asking you about your digital strategy. What they're looking for is a list of projects they can work on, use cases. But it, but if you don't if you don't put all of those projects, those use cases, all the th problems you're going to solve within the context of a much larger digital strategy on a common technology filtered through minimum technical requirements so that you can create an ecosystem, which is the industrial internet of things. If you can't create a common ecosystem on common technology, you're wasting your money. And so who, who should you not go to? If you're going to Rockwell and you're asking Rockwell Automation, and if you have a partnership with Rockwell, I apologize. But if, if, you're, if you're going to Rockwell Automation and you're saying, hey, Rockwell, come in and consult with us and give us the connected enterprise, you're screwed, full stop. You're not going to find a single architect who doesn't work for Rockwell, who isn't going to tell you the same thing I just told you, okay? The, the, if you're doing that, what you're getting is a, a solution. You're getting a Rockwell solution, okay? Right. What you need is a, uh, think of it as a quilt. Your, your technical infrastructure is a quilt of all the best solutions from all OEMs connected together on common technology. That's what we teach using a concept called the unified namespace. So, but manufacturers, it's, this isn't that hard. You become a smart company over the course of a three to five year window. And that's connect, collect, store, analyze, visualize, find patterns, predict, report, solve. Once you're a smart company, then you plug into a digital supply chain. So instead of just talking to the links upstream and downstream from you, you're talking to all the links, including the links you don't work with yet. That's what, that is what smart companies do. Smart companies make products that get better after you buy them and they plug into a digital supply chain. That right. it's just, it's simply that simple. So if you're a manufacturer watching this or you work for a manufacturer watching this, you need to ask yourself, are we on that path? Hmm. Is that where we're going? And if not, you're dying. It's, it's just that simple. Yeah. You're falling yeah. further and further behind. Yep. Yeah. Well, so I've got a few comments I want to get to here and then a question too uh, from the audience. Yep. Um, but first of all, I have to you hit a few comments here. I think, uh, I don't think it's, it's pretty clear that your, uh, your personal story and your personal mission uh, has resonated and struck a chord with the audience here. Um, someone from LinkedIn that doesn't show the name uh, says, I'm sorry it happened to you as a child, but totally agree. This horrible experiences make you, make you stronger, stronger. Um, Parisa on uh, LinkedIn also says that's an inspiring mission with passion. There's nothing that can stop you, uh, which I totally agree with. Um, and then a, another comment here that extreme childhood trauma to make good in the world. Amazing. So I think that's a really cool um, story. And let um, me, I'd like to give uh, Zach, Zach Scriven, who's my digital media strategist credit here. Uh, for a very long time, I didn't talk about this story. I, I mean, I talk, everybody in my, in my circle knew about it and I would talk about it and they knew it. You know, I talked to my employees and everybody, but publicly I didn't talk about that story. Yeah. Zach, I mean, that's hard to talk about. I mean, I imagine that's probably not the easiest thing to bring up. Zach said one, you know, there's a, there's a video we shot a couple of years ago where I'm walking through a marina in upstate New York and it's the story of Walker Reynolds. And Zach is saying, listen, you need to tell your, like your life story, like, and I, and he wanted me to do this for months. And I kept saying, Zach, no one cares about that. It's not, it doesn't, 
it doesn't it doesn't go to this. And, and Zach insisted over and over and over again, you're wrong. Like you're wrong. This it's a key part of of how you've gotten to where you are. And you have to tell that part of it like the, the audience needs that context. So I want to give Zach all the credit because it was never my idea to to ever even mention it. But now when that question does come up, I do tell that part of the story. And it's because Zach insisted, hey, th that context is important. So, Zach, thank you, brother. But and it's a it's a reminder, too, that we all, you know, being in the professional services space as you and I are, I mean, it's it's we're all human and we want to work with humans and flawed or not or, you know, the imperfections that go along with that. And the that's that that's authenticity. That's you yeah. know, it's um, it's uh, Americans crave authenticity because there is so much. Um, I don't want to say fakeness. It's not that it's it, there's so much production in the world. Right. There's so yeah. I, I think fake is too hard of a word. Uh, I think I, we we crave authenticity, and and the interesting thing is the the nature of work is changing, right? It used to be like when our careers started. And I, I'm assuming Eric, you're around my age, right? So when when our when our careers started, you there was a there were clear lines in the sand between work and home, right? right. You were either at home or you were at work, and this is home time and this is work time. That's changing. That I mean, it has changed. You are always at work and you are always at home. And so therefore, the values that you have at home need to merge, need to merge into the values you have at work. So now what I encourage people to do when they're going to find an employer, it's not benefits and income. And it's I don't even talk about any of that stuff. What I talk about right. is you need to go find an employer who shares the values you have and they don't just put they don't just write it down and put it, you know, it's a mission statement that they don't really work towards or it's values they don't really have. You need to ask questions about real values because you're always going to be at work right. and you're always going to be at home. And and that and that's the nature of what I think drives us towards authenticity is we want authenticity at home. We expect it at home. And because we're always at work and always at home in this new economy, we, we need authenticity at work as well. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. That's that's really well well said. Um, here's a here's a comment I want to sort of springboard into a question for you, uh, Walker. And this is from Michael on YouTube. He says, "Absolutely resonates with me in Mexico. As the southern neighbor of the U.S., it is good for both countries that Mexico gets rich and be, rich and becomes a better customer of U.S. products and services." Yep. So I, I guess just to maybe back up a little bit and turn that into a question as it relates to to the more global scale here. Um, how does everything you're talking about, as far as the um, you know, wanting to help the middle class and in, in the in the did we lose Eric? Whole into a U.S. centric uh, mission of sorts. Um, so the answer is this. It, um, so I, Michael Dowdell, the guy who answered the asked the question. We we know Michael. I I know what company he works for. He's a visionary thought leader. Um, you know, the customers that Michael works with in Mexico, the vast majority of them are, are suppliers for American companies. Okay. And American consumers are consuming the goods for the most part are consuming the goods from the suppliers that the sub assemblies that go into the finished goods that Michael serves. Though they don't go anywhere. Those suppliers don't go anywhere. Those suppliers start making products that are bought in Mexico through a thriving middle class that is grown in Mexico. What we did 
by offshoring supply chain into Mexico is we created the infrastructure for the for Mexico to have their supply chain for the consumer economy. That that's the that's the difference. The mm. difference is is that we create new suppliers here in the United States who's who are manufacturing the goods, you know, it, as a function of logistics, manufacturing the subassemblies that go into the finished goods. But the but the here's the fundamental difference. This this is the biggest key difference. Operations analysis and if you look at our clients, our clients have manufacturing facilities all over the world, but they no longer have manufacturing facilities all over the world to manufacture goods as cheaply as possible to sell them in the United States for the biggest margins. No, they manufacture in China to sell in China. They manufacture in Mexico to sell in Mexico. They manufacture in Costa Rica to sell in South America. But what do they do? What do they what do they do with the data they collect in those manufacturing facilities? They aggregate it in a common infrastructure and they use U.S. based engineers, data scientists and operations analysts to optimize their manufacturing operations in their offshore facilities. That is the that's the new economy for the United States. Why? Because a, as an industrial nation, the United States, Germany, Japan, you know, all Western Europe, Germany, Japan, um, United States as the three key leaders we're so far ahead of um other industrial economies our economy transforms as a fourth industrial uh or an industry 4.0 economy before mexico's does right mexico but one of the things some interesting things about company uh, countries like mexico we had to go through the physical infrastructure first we needed a lot of copper all over our country right mm -hmm. you, you, telephone lines, you know, Ethernet cables. Countries like Mexico don't have need that. Me Africa doesn't need that. Uh, India doesn't need that. Now it's all 5G. They'll be able to put infrastructure in place much, much faster than we did. And mm -hmm. so they will catch up at the speed of light to, to where the we Western Europe is, the United States is, Germany, Japan, et cetera. That's super interesting. I never, yep. I never connected those two data points into, into that context. So that's, that's a really interesting point. So that was number two in our ranking of top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. That's Walker Reynolds from 4.0 Solutions and Intellic, which is a, Intellic is a uh, industry 4.0 system integrator. 4.0 Solutions is an industry 4.0 education and, and coaching sort of uh, organization. And he's part of both of those organizations. And that's him talking about the future of manufacturing technology, industry 4.0, smart factories, all that stuff. You can listen to the whole interview, including his full personal story and his mission into how he got into the world of manufacturing, which is a fascinating story. Go back to episode number 68 and you can listen to that full interview. So we are to the number one spot. And the only hint I'm really going to give you for number one is that it's not based on any one topic. And there's actually several guests in this interview. Um, and it's actually one of the more, it's the most recent uh of all the people on our top 10 list or all the interviews in our top 10 list, it's actually the most recent uh, recent episode of the podcast that I'm drawing this from. Uh, but I'll tell you who it is or who these people are, and I'll play you a clip of the interview with these people. When we come back after a quick break, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control's ranking of the top 10 interviews of 2022 so far. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. 
It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings. And the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 71. We're counting down the top 10 interviews of this podcast so far, and we are up to the number one spot. And this is, I would say, this is hands down the, the most fun I had doing an interview of any of the interviews in the top 10 list or any of the interviews this year so far, and maybe even my favorite interview that I've done yet in the entire year and a half we've been doing the show. And the reason it was so much fun is because I, I wanted to try something totally different. And I was trying to get out of this rut of having guests on who are very knowledgeable, um, very good guests as we've seen in the top 10 list so far. But I wanted to move away from sort of a, uh, more of a, an academic Q&A discussion, which is very helpful, nothing wrong with that, but I wanted to mix it up. I was just feeling a little bored to be candid. I was, I was getting kind of bored with the, with the format. So I thought, you know, why don't we do a, a different format? And actually, uh, one of our uh, directors of strategy and transformation, Adam Cheatham, uh, from our team here in the U.S., had the idea of why not do sort of a game show format or you know something kind of fun like that. And I loved the idea. I took it, ran with it, tried it out. I had no idea how it was going to go, but it turned out to be really fun. I, I think the panel had a lot of fun. The audience got really engaged because we did it in a live stream format. And so we had several guests. I, I invited uh, a number of people. Ironically, Adam, whose idea it was to do this uh this format wasn't available to be um, on the on the live stream or in the panel discussion because of previous commitments, but we had a, a number of other people that were able to participate from the third stage team. So we had, uh, in this panel discussion, we had six other people. We had Nate Stroer, who's a practice lead at third stage uh, consulting. We had Greg Benton, who's our chief strategy officer uh, at third stage. We had Teresa Richardson, who is a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage. Uh, Michelle Weiss, who's a senior manager at Third Stage. Clifford Martin, who is the head of our South Africa practice. And you may recall that he was uh, the interview that was at number, I already forgot what number he was. He was number six, I want to say. No, he was number five, I'm sorry. Back at number five, you may recall that Clifford Martin uh, was at number five where he talked about holding system integrators accountable. He's in the panel discussion as well, as was Kyler Cheatham, who is my co-host of Transformation Ground Control. So we had the six of them on the show. We did a live stream. We got a lot of audience questions. 
And so what we wanted to do is instead of having a deep dive discussion on a specific topic, I didn't tell the panel discussion or the panelist what questions I was going to ask. I, I gave them no heads up, advance warning. I give them, I ask them a question. I give them time to write it down, and then they show their answers. We run through the answers, and we might elaborate on one or two of those responses. Anything that looks surprising or interesting, we'll we'll kind of dive into. But the idea was meant to be more of a quicker paced, faster paced, fun format that wasn't requiring so much mental commitment from the listeners. And it was still value add though. You know, we still wanted to get into best practices and what makes projects succeed, what the biggest risks are, biggest reasons why they fail, most important change management tactic. Those are the sorts of questions that I asked in this in this live stream. So I'll play you the clip here, which was actually hard to choose one clip because so much of it was so interesting and, and good. Um, but this clip, uh, we'll play you a clip from that discussion, which is actually back from uh, episode number 69, uh, which was just a couple weeks ago uh, from the time this uh, episode is coming out. So episode number 69, we had a consulting panel discussion, sort of a game show format minus the keeping score and minus giving out prizes. Although, you know, who knows, maybe we'll transition to that, that format later on. But we'll play you a clip here of the consulting panel discussion of digital transformation best practices. This is very strategic, high-level stuff, and so we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Let's let's play a clip from that. Uh, number one interview, which is the consulting panel discussion back from episode number 69. So just to sort of get started thing, uh, on things here um, with, with this format, what we wanted to do, again, we're going to go through a lightning round. We're going to get the, the panel responses here. We're going to get audience responses to each of these questions. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask, we're going to give the uh, panel just a few seconds to respond to each of these questions, and then uh, we'll, we'll ask the audience as well. Um, but the first question I have for the panelists here, and again, just sort of in the theme of giving a broad brush, broad-based view of what makes digital transformation successful, just to kick things off, first question I have for the panelists here is what is the biggest key to digital transformation success? So if you could just if you could just put it just write it down on and uh, Teresa already had her her answer ready. In fact, we were joking before we went live that you your answer to everything is probably going to be change management. It so is. Just, the question it's is, it's just change management. That's all it is. Efficiency. All right. So I'm actually just going to run around here, and it looks like we've got oh. a few responses already. Um, so Nate says buy-in is is important. That's that's definitely a good one. Similarly, Michelle says executive support. Teresa says change management. Greg says clearly understood objectives for change. And then um, Clifford says defining transformation. Very good responses. So I guess I'm going to pick on you, Teresa, just to elaborate a little bit why. And I'm only asking you this because I know you already had that piece of paper pre-written with change management. For everything. <laughs> so, so why change management? Why do you think that's the most well, important thing? It's important because, in my opinion, um, the entire organization needs to buy into it. They need to adopt it and use it. If you spend millions of dollars or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on a transformation and nobody uses it, you know you have a problem. So, in order for it to be accepted and take hold, the organization needs to understand it. They need to buy into it. They need to support it. They need to be involved in the process and use it. Makes makes total sense. And then Greg, you, can you show your response again? I think you had, was it clearly defined goals and objectives? Yeah, yep. many times uh, organizations go into the, uh, the idea that they're going to digitally transform. 
they really don't have it well defined. They really don't have the objectives for the outcome of that digital transformation. In other words, if we implement all of the, uh, the technology, the people, the process changes that uh, Teresa was talking about, what is our return going to be? What is the organization going to look like in a year, in five years? And I think very often organizations don't put enough planning up front or strategy up front into what's going to be needed to accomplish that change. And not just uh, paving cow paths, as we say, with the, uh, with, the, with the new technology, but actually changing the organization for the better. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's a good point. And actually what you're saying actually helps enable some of the other stuff like executive support, the buy-in that, that Nate and Michelle talked about. Um, certainly change management can be more effective when we have clearly defined goals and objectives. Um, I'd also be curious from the audience, what which one of these uh, panelists do you agree with? Do you disagree or what did we miss? What would you add to the mix? We'd love to hear from the audience here in terms of what you think the most important key to digital transformation success is. So please feel free to drop in the chat. Also, as we're going here, if you have questions you want to ask the panel, um, be happy to take those as well. They don't know what's coming anyway, so you might as well, uh, we might as well take some audience questions as well. Um, so please feel free to chime in uh, with any questions you want to ask here. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question here. Um, and it's somewhat similar, but we're sort of flipping it a little bit from the previous question. And that is, what is the number one reason why digital transformations fail? Oh man, how much paper do you guys have? <laughs> one piece of paper, apparently. It's all right. It fits. She didn't even bring a pen. She just already had that prepared. She just <laughs> ah, I've been prepared since last night. <laughs> all right. Actually, uh, before we get to all the responses here, I'm gonna I'm gonna show a comment here that we had uh, on YouTube, and the, the, their response here on YouTube was defining the transformation for the business and for people. So that was uh, uh, an interesting point of feedback. And I agree with that people, the better they understand what the, 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 um, the, the goals and objectives are, the better, better off it's going to be. All right. So the number one reason why they fail, uh, Nate, you said lack of vision or goals. Um, Clifford says misaligned expectations. Uh, Michelle says wrong people driving change. Interesting. Come back to that one. <laughs> Teresa said, oh, what? Change management. <laughs> wait, 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 change management. Balloon. And then, wait, Greg has a balloon. I, how did you, well, there's, I have a lot of questions. Inflated expectations. <laughs> That's you great. know, I, I didn't know these questions were going to come up, but I did have the balloon. <laughs> that is awesome. You I can't wait to see what other props uh, you just might have. Just in case you need it, like to burst someone's bubble, you just have spare balloons <laughs> laying around. That's funny. Right. That's super funny. So, Michelle, what? show me your response again. I remember I wanted to come back to it. No, I already forgot what you said, but it was really good. Um, oh, we lost. Hold the one second here. Well, well um, Michelle's queuing yep. up. Just a reminder for our audience, Michelle represents um, all of our Latin American um, clients down there. So, Michelle, if you want to say hi to our Spanish speakers in language, definitely <laughs> feel free to answer anything in Spanish today. Okay, I will. <laughs> Hola. That's about as much. <laughs> uh, Thank you for I, that lesson, Eric. That said, I know how to speak Spanish. Salsa, taco, guacamole. You know, I'm like, that's not Spanish. I'm sorry. <laughs> All the essentials, definitely. So, 
So the wrong people driving change, explain what you mean by that, Michelle, or why that's a, a risk or a failure point for transformations. Um, what I was getting at is sometimes the people that are driving the change aren't the people that the workers, um, you know, feel like they want to follow or, you know, um, respect. Um, so I know that that's happened in a couple of projects where the people that are driving that change aren't actually the ones that are um, respected by the organization. And, and so. Right. Like they don't have credibility or. Cred yeah. Credibility, that type of thing. And but they get put on a project anyway, just because maybe they have the time or um, they have a certain role, but it doesn't mean that the people that need to change are going to necessarily want to because of, of the people that are, are driving it. So the people driving change, do you ever see where the people that are responsible for driving change are the ones that are most stuck in the past? Like they don't want to drive the change or they they, they want to drive their definition of change that maybe doesn't align with the overall goals and objectives or what have you seen there? Um, more, more that, you know, people just decide not to do it because they don't respect the person or the person doesn't have the, um, the, uh, power to really, you know, drive that change. Um, so uh, I think selecting the right people to to manage that or to make sure that they're communicating down to the people that are having to do the change, having those people well selected is really important. Um, so that's why I put that. that gotcha. So here's here's a comment or question that I think only you can help us with, Michelle. Yes. I was like, no, uh, people are talking to us in Spanish. So. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Elias, Elias, sorry, Elias, um, is saying that, yeah, the wrong people are the ones pushing the change. So it's kind of the same thing that I'm, that I'm saying. Nice. So we've got, we've got some Spanish translation happening in the chat, which is perfect. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. My glasses uh, to read that little small name. So I apologize <laughs> if I butchered that. It, it is it is hard to read for sure. Um, and then Greg, we had to come back to it. Um, your prop is highly effective, uh, as is the message on your your balloon prop. But uh, the comment here is inflated expectations is the best answer with balloon. But um, so at least one person watching agrees with you, Greg. What, what tell us what you mean by that, or why is inflated expectations? Why is that a problem, or how does that lead to failure? Well, I, I think that. People believe that uh, going into a digital transformation means that everything will come out on the other end as a technology change without any any real effort and support the organization in the way that um, that is envisioned going forward. And that often comes with a, uh, a lack of clear transformational plan objectives and uh, even the governance internally to uh, to make that happen. And uh, very often the, the strategy piece and really understanding where you wanna go as an organization, this kind of goes along with what do you see as success for digital transformation is understanding what change is gonna happen and how it's going to affect the organization and the return on investment as a result. Gotcha. Yep, makes, makes total sense. And uh, I, I agree with that. There's a lot of, that seems to be a root cause for a lot of other problems that people mistakenly think is the real cause of of uh, failure for example change management back to teresa's point you know if i have unrealistic expectations chances are fairly high i'm going to cut change management because i had unrealistic expectations and i need to force fit my project into a timeline or, or uh, budget 
So you end up cutting something like change management and then you blame change management for the reason why the project failed when really maybe it was because you had unrealistic expectations all along. So that was the number one interview on our top 10 list here. And this is uh, obviously the midpoint for 2022. There's a lot of interviews left to happen this year. Who knows how this top 10 list will evolve and shake up over the next half of the year. Um, but you know, our job and our goal is to make these 10 interviews become obsolete or not nearly as good as the next top 10 list we do. So our, our goal is to continuously uh, outdo each other and outdo ourselves every time we do a new episode. So I hope you enjoyed this top 10 list and I hope you enjoyed this format of sort of giving a flyover view of sort of the best of. Uh, anytime we've done this best of or top 10 ranking format in past episodes, those tend to be pretty popular. They tend to be our most popular episodes. So hopefully that's the case here today. And I hope we found it of value. And I encourage you to check out the podcast if this is your first time listening, or if you haven't listened to all the episodes, I encourage you just to go back and look. It's all the different topics we've covered. You may not have time to listen to all 70 episodes that we've done so far, but there's probably a handful of episodes that any one of you listening right now will find a lot of value in. So I encourage you to go check out some of those episodes and you know, cherry pick the interviews that look most interesting to you, listen to partial episodes, whatever you want to do. We put it all out there so you can uh, digest at your leisure and at your pace and all that good stuff. So I encourage you to check that out and be sure to subscribe to the show too. If you have any, uh, uh, if you haven't subscribed yet on YouTube or, uh, on whatever audio podcast platform you listen, be sure to, to subscribe and uh, check us out there and also leave us a review. And also, uh, even more importantly, if you could just share the show with other people that you work with, peers, people on your project team, if you're part of a consulting organization, share it with your peers, uh, other consultants, your clients, I'd love to get the word out and love to share this content with anyone you think might find it of value. So I want to thank you for listening in here again this week. This is episode number 71. This is the top 10 ranking of the interview so far. We'll get back to our normal uh, interview formats with some creative twists starting again next week. And we're going to try and continue to bring on better and better guests and more diverse guests over time and different formats. And we'll keep we'll keep uh, providing value however we can. So thanks for listening. Hope you're having a great summer so far for those of you in the uh, the Northern Hemisphere that are entering summer. I hope you have a great summer and your summer's off to a great start so far. Uh, holiday season, if that's where you're headed in your part of the world, I hope you're, you're having a great holiday season and uh, hope you're having a great week wherever you are and whenever you're listening. My name is Eric Kimberling. This is Transformation Ground Control. We'll see you next time. Thank you and take care.